Gustav wrote, the leader directs the crowd. They are a servile flock that is incapable of doing anything without a master. And the leader projects every opinion contrary to his as an error or superstition. Does this crowd of Gustav actually exist? Anecdotally, it, it appears, right? Though I don't think that they are as resilient to reason as Gustav claims, but it does seem so at times. I've had conversations with people who believe a false narrative propagated by the news, and there is absolutely some resistance to reason on their part if it counters their false narrative, what they believe, their false story of what they believe. They don't believe the evidence contrary to the belief, and they refuse to research it. So they are being made delusional. So one conversation, there was uh, such overwhelming evidence that my former friend said, you know, you're never going to convince me. You know, that statement showed me that she was bigoted. That is an unreasonably attached to her opinion, strongly prejudiced that she formed her opinion without just cause and illiberal toward other views that she was ignoring evidence from government sources that invalidated her opinion proves to me that she was delusional, which is to ignore valid evidence that invalidates your opinion. Given the definition, delusion is extremely common, as is bigotry in the manipulated. The only way out of the delusion is to critically examine all evidence impartially, especially the evidence that counters our opinions. Gustav claims the leaders of his Gustavian crowd are more frequently men of action than thinkers and are not gifted with keen foresight, nor could they be. <laughs> and this quality generally conduces to doubt and inactivity. This makes me think of the uh, word morbidity, which was unnatural and unhealthy the morbidity. Gustav explained that leaders of crowds are morbidly nervous, excitable, half-deranged persons bordering on madness. <laughs> Sounds like he's describing a manic disorder, excessively intense enthusiasm, interest or desire, operating word being excessively, someone who's neurotic, abnormally obsesses over things. I don't know if neuroses are even allowed to be talked about anymore. Maybe it's taboo. But what is critical, according to Gustav, is that the leader's convictions are so strong that reason is lost upon them. So they are narrow-minded. It's spooky thinking that Hitler read these words and that his yelling at the podium could have been just a shtick resulting from reading this book. Gustav isn't explaining a good leader, just what he believes leaders of his Gustavian crowds typically are. Where is he citing evidence and proof for these claims? He's not. A lot of Gustav's assertions are just him talking out of his ass. In his book, he uses the very techniques he claims the crowd uses. Affirmation and repetition. Affirmation meaning just asserting something is true. He claims leaders of crowds are so obsessive that they sacrifice personal interests, their family, everything. Does he mean they sacrifice for the cause? Sacrifice could mean intentionally giving up his family. But a more uh, natural interpretation 
would be more along the lines of neglect or collateral damage. At what level of family does he mean? The young usually leave their nest to go start their own family. And does Gustav mean, you know, the children uh, sacrificing the parents, that family, or does he mean the parents sacrificing their children? Uh, or, or, you know, what, what does he mean? It's ambiguous. And ambiguity is a technique used by manipulators. <laughs> Gustav says so. So ambiguous meaning, um, what's it mean? Multiple interpretations that are different. And it's unclear which interpretation is meant, which is similar but different to vague, which means foggy, unclear, poorly defined. Ambiguous means you don't know which track to take. Vague means you don't know if there even is a track. So Gustav claims the intensity of the faith of the leaders gives great power of suggestion to the words, like a con man, a confidence man. In an electronics class back in college, I misinterpreted some concept, but I thought I was correct. And when the instructor explained it wrong, I corrected him with such confidence that he at first thought I was right and eventually worked out that, you know, he was originally right and I was wrong. Here was the guy who knew his stuff. Granted, we were doing, uh, you know, some somewhat nuanced subject, but simply being confident in my wrongness was enough to make him question himself. That's the power of confident assertions. An idiot student can make a learned instructor question his knowledge. <laughs> Imagine what can happen to someone who doesn't know their stuff as well as that instructor. Anecdotal evidence is not proof, but it's sufficient to make me believe Gustav's claim is at least plausible. If true, this is a bizarre mechanism of the human species, that people follow the narrow-minded leaders full of confidence in their views regardless of accuracy, but those same people won't follow an open-minded critical thinker who is required to not be 100% certain as that would lead to narrow-minded bigotry. Bigotry being stubborn or unreasonably attached to a belief or opinion that is prejudiced. Prejudice being a preconceived opinion that is not based on reason or actual experience. When you think of the definition of prejudice, you wonder what the difference is between prejudice and theoretical concepts. Well, I guess based on reason would be the difference. <laughs> so prejudice does not mean based on false reason. It means based on no reasoning at all. Natural interpretation is that there may be false reasoning or fallacious reasoning like the fallacy of stereotype. We know human reasoning is fallible. So at what level of reasoning does prejudice turn into theoretical concepts? Or prejudice is a theoretical concept and valid working theoretical concepts are a form of concept that seek to challenge their own validity. Whereas prejudice is a form of concept that does not seek to challenge its own validity. Gustav claims the crowd lose all force of will and seek to follow those who have what the crowd lacks. So what causes the crowd to lose all force of will? Gustav doesn't say. He mentions some rudimentary forms of manipulation leaders use like subtle rhetoric and flattering base instincts. However, it appears these leaders of the mob are Kool-Aid drinkers themselves, according to Gustav. 
that is ardent supporters of the cause who have been fascinated by the creed and due to this belief they are able to convincingly win over the the crowd to their opinion creed of course means faith the creeds or faiths can be religious political or social a work a person an idea creed means quite a bit so Gustav, I'm assuming, differentiates between great leaders and great leaders of crowds, or perhaps he's not, and he believes all the great leaders have been uh, or can only be this type of person. Gustav implied people can be non-crowd-like when the leader is gone, but also claimed that people can be crowd-like as individuals when reading the paper. Perhaps they are using the author of the articles as a pseudo-leader. But I'm connecting the dots for him. So, right. Uh, the fact that Gustav wrote the book at all mean that he believes the group that read his book are not Gustavian crowd, or he believes they are, and he is writing to the crowd. He does use the same techniques, but for what purpose then? Maybe just to make money, right? <laughs> Selling a book or to make fools of the crowd. But then he would be writing of logic and reason to an audience that he claims cannot understand logic and reason. Perhaps he's lying and his crowd is capable of logic and reason, and he's simply writing to them with a false definition of what they are to make them think that they are not his crowd. <laughs> I don't know. Perhaps he's having a laugh and the whole book is meant to be a joke. We all agree that crowds can be idiots at times, and yet we all are the crowd. Is there a logical disconnect or perhaps elitism that plays on our egos that we feel superior to others and claim to ourselves that we are not the crowd, even though we are the crowd? This book is clearly not talking about us. We know better. We are smarter than others. We are special. We are entitled. We deserve things. You know, perhaps Gustav was playing a joke on the elitists. Who are the crowd <laughs> as well? I don't know. He could easily placate their prejudices against the, the hoi polloi. I don't think you're supposed to say the in front of it, right? So he could easily placate their prejudices against hoi polloi. Because I think hoi means the. Polloi means populace, right? So the uh, against hoi polloi. Uh, placate is not the uh, the right word. He could appeal to their prejudices by deriding or ridiculing, ridiculing the surplus population. It is possible. But there's a class of people who are different. They question more and are the leading edge of knowledge and movements. They see trends and stories before the masses see it. Their behaviors are different to the mass. Perhaps these are elites. I should be careful about the word elite Typically, it means a class of superior skill. It can mean wealth, power, education, or intelligence. But what I'm talking about is more innate skill, which can be learned. But the class of person I'm referring to is the person who is critical, not skeptical, but critical. The observational elite. These are the ones who give... Uh, crowdsourcing its power. They are the antithesis of the hive mind groupthink. They are human and their observations may not always be correct. Gustav is an observational elite. The fact that I'm doing a podcast on 
on a book he wrote uh, 130 plus years later is evidence to his observational skills. Is this skill genetically wired? Hmm. Is there genetic programming? Young's archetypes of social consciousness? Uh, it appears there might be, right? We are all susceptible to, are we all? Are we all susceptible to being a leader? <laughs> the flaw of being a leader. If Gustav's leaders are all narrow-minded bigots, what of the noble humans who by their character would make honest, critical thinking and moral leaders? By noble, I'm not in any way referring to nobility as in the inbred blue blood retards of, you know, the royal rank. By noble, I'm meaning possessing outstanding qualities. Morals, who's to determine what is moral and what is not? Where is the line? Are morals instinct or a social construct or both? Some have morals and others need to be taught morals. It would appear that leaders need a critical or accurate thinking at some level to navigate their circumstances. Perhaps there are social instincts and uh, Perhaps our, our social instincts and critical thinking has, as Gustav claims, nothing to do with it. Your social IQ. <laughs> social norms and morals are like the, the guidelines that help us figure out what is going on in someone else's head, right? Are you part of my tribe or are you a threat? Leaders may have instincts, but have honed their skills in the specific setting with experience, trial and error. Some people set out to try to be leaders if the bookstore shelves are an indicator. The question remains unanswered. In his model, does Gustav believe all leaders are his type of leader? If so, are leaders just randos who are at the right place at the right time with the right character? Like the rock star situation where there are many trying to become leaders and chaos and probability will make someone a leader but each person has an astronomically unlikely chance. Given the exact same scenario, it could turn out to be someone else, like the flip of a coin, or the strike of a lightning into a crowd, right? Gustav wrote that his leaders are of the crowd. They believe and then step up to lead, which is a contradiction to what he wrote about the crowd not voting in someone who is of their class, their equal. The leader needs to be perceived as being superior. Gustav called it prestige. Perhaps humans step up to fill a, a power vacuum if the conditions are right for them to be activated as a leader. There are many stories of this happening during World War II. It's very insect-like behavior. Power is addictive to some, perhaps for a reason. Our species or natural selection may have wired us to sacrifice our individual lives to lead the masses which would require a payment uh, psychologically to keep someone doing it. So the drug of power is addictive to our brains once we get a taste to varying degrees, depending on the individual. This is just speculation. It would be like we have latent genes that sit dormant until activated by a circumstance like the, uh, the ants. I don't know if you know the story of the, Ants, when they run out of resources, some of them will grow wings and fly to be reconnaissance to look for new, you know, new, better ground, right? 
this is bizarre. So maybe humans do the similar thing. They will sprout their wings of leadership and, uh, you know, step up out of the crowd and become, you know, the leader and, and demonstrate their prestige. So recall that faith is one of the, uh, one of the tools used by the manipulator and Gustav claims of all the forces at the disposal of humanity, faith has been the most tremendous to endow a man with faith is to strengthen his will 10 times. Gustav wrote that the leaders of great events of history have been brought about by obscure believers who've had little beyond their faith and their favor. It is not by the aid of the learned or of philosophers and still less of skeptics that have been built up the great religions which have swayed the world or vast empires which have spread from one hemisphere to another. So a concept which controls a man can force him to become a leader, which promotes that concept. Almost as if a concept is a conscious entity, perhaps like a virus or something less malevolent. Malevolent. The truth or falsity of the concept is irrelevant. Irrelevant and malevolent. <laughs> so it's kind of like the, uh, the memetic, the, the meme theory. <clears throat> Can consciousness be quantized into concepts? Schemata is broken down into schema. Or is consciousness more of a uh, gestalt concept that cannot be described by its component parts? We are more than the machinery of concepts. We are choice. Gustav wrote, In the cases just cited, we are dealing with great leaders. So there it is. He believes even the great leaders are the narrow-minded neurotics he defined earlier. He wrote that the powerful masters of men down to the workmen in the smoky inn. He works his magic by ceaselessly drumming into the ears a few set of phrases, talking points today, whose purport he scarcely comprehends, but the application of which, according to him, must surely bring about the realization of all dreams and every hope. So, Repetition and vague messaging or some message the target is not expected to understand. <laughs> Again, with this vagueness, right? Ambiguity. What are they even talking about? You're supposed to be like that if you want to brainwash people, right? They're like, oh, whatever you're saying is true. Which is the opposite of what one might expect. Repetition makes sense, but incomprehen incomprehensible messaging. Incomprehensible messaging. There is the, uh, there's the technique of baffling with bullshit, right? It's, it's too much info so fast that the target can't keep up and just trusts the grifters conclusions without reasoning them out themselves, perhaps not to look like a fool. This is probably what Gustav is referring to. He wrote, the majority of people don't possess clear and reasoned ideas on any subject, whatever outside their own speciality. The leader serves them as guide. So remember when I questioned Gustav claiming a person can still be uh, of the crowd when sitting at home reading the paper? He clarifies that now. It is just possible that he, the leader, may be replaced, though very inefficiently, by the periodical publications which manufacture opinions for the readers and supply them with ready-made phrases which dispense them of the trouble of reasoning. By this is the uh, 
But this is the opposite of what he said earlier uh, when he claimed that papers write what the crowd demands them to. Here he's saying the crowd is told what to think by the papers. So we hear today the phrase anti-vaxxer when even an idiot should know the difference between anti-mandate and anti-vaccine or how stupid it is to try to disparage someone as an anti-masker when they question the efficacy of a 300-count cotton cloth versus a 0.12 micron airborne virus. So those idiots who use the terms anti-masker and anti-vaxxer are programmed to say that and have that opinion because they are of the Gustavian crowd. Gustav claims the despotism of a leader is a condition of the crowds to follow him. So the despotism of a leader is a condition of the crowds to follow him. Hmm. Is he joking? I don't know. Sounds like he could be doing a bit of a joke. He claims the tyranny of these new masters has crowds that obey them much more docilely than they have obeyed any government. Who are these new leaders of crowds, if not politicians? He doesn't say. Only that they usurp more power from governments. So possibly union leaders or I guess any kind of social leader. I don't know. Gustav claims that, or or, or uh, you're probably referring to the... Uh, Rebellion types. So Gustav claims that if leaders be taken out, the crowd will return to its original state of collectivity without cohesion or force of resistance. So chop off the head and the crowd will dissipate. According to Gustav, it is the need not of liberty, but of servitude that is always predominant in the soul of crowds. They are so bent on obedience that they instinctively submit to whoever declares himself their master. That is quite a claim, Gustav. Again, more assertions, or as he calls them, affirmations. Gustav claims there are two categories of leader, the temporary ringleader, agitator, who are energetic and possess much strength of will, violent, brave, and audacious. The other type is much rarer, apparently, as they have enduring will. The transient leader burns away with the exciting cause. The enduring leader has a much more considerable influence. In his category are founders of religions and great undertakings. He claims it doesn't matter that they are narrow-minded or intelligent. Their persistent will of force is an immensely powerful faculty to which everything yields. He writes, nothing resists strong and continuous will, not nature, gods, nor men. He cites uh, De La Sepp, the guy who made the Suez Canal, as an example. You know, as the Suez, nature, gods, or man could not resist his continuous will to make the, the Suez Canal. He succeeded, right? So now the means of action of the leaders, the, the simple technique that they use. Gustav uses this technique in his book, which again, I'm not sure if it's supposed to be a joke or not, but these techniques are affirmation, repetition, and contagion. Affirmation just means claiming something that is true. No, not that is true. Affirmation just means claiming something is true. Doesn't mean it is, it's just a claiming that it's true. So then you repeat it, and then the monkey crowd will repeat it on their own as a contagion. So rapid suggestion is the most powerful form of getting a crowd to act immediately. 
So here we go. The rapid suggestion. Don't give them time to digest it, right? But to program our minds with social theories, it is somewhat slow, but its effects are very lasting. The leader needs to use affirmation, repetition, and contagion. Affirmation kept free of all reasoning and all proof is one of the surest means of making an idea enter the mind of crowds. So let me repeat that part. Affirmation that is kept free of all reasoning and all proof is one of the surest means of making an idea enter the minds of crowds. The more conciser the affirmation is, the more destitute of every appearance of proof and demonstration, the more weight it carries. He mentions how religious leaders, legal statesmen, commercial and advertising professionals all know this well. There may be a reason that advertisements are only 30 seconds on the radio and TV. Affirmation only works when repeated constantly. The human mind begins to believe crap that is repeated and accepts it as demonstrated truth, even the most enlightened minds. Gustav claims it is because repetition digs way down into our psyche where motives of our actions are formed. In essence, he's calling it a hack. In what do they call it? What was that Inception, the movie, right? Eventually, we forget who the author is of the repeated assertion or affirmation, and we finish by believing it. It appears that at least the ad men of the last century believed this, considering the repetition of ads, though this may have been a, uh, an organic origin as it's way cheaper to make one ad and repeat it. Though the entire TV industry was started around selling soap, so the period and frequency of the whole TV programming system with ads versus show was built around someone's concept of what system sells the best. With the demise of TV, perhaps those methods no longer work or only work with a captured audience. They can't make content interesting enough to keep people or to keep eyeballs given the, uh, the other methods or modes of entertainment today. Why do we even bother with TV when reading a book is infinitely better for us and actually entertaining and enlightening? It's like being enchanted when someone writes something that rings true despite there being no evidence other than perhaps personal anecdotes or the odd previous thought that agrees. I shouldn't say it's like being enchanted. It is being enchanted. We want to believe it, but if we look, we don't see any evidence being cited. Just affirmation based on prejudice. Prejudice, of course, meaning preconceived opinion not based on reason or real evidence. So real evidence, you know, valid evidence, I think is probably what should be the definition. We have to be careful too when we think of reasoning. There is good reasoning with bad data, bad reasoning with good data, bad reasoning with bad data, and the holy grail, good reasoning with good data. <laughs> Gustav defines his crowd as bad reasoning with bad data. So I guess there was enough books trying to qualify good reasoning and validate good data, right? Why would he choose that? Like, why does he not know? Why would he happen to choose, you know, bad reasoning, bad data? Why wouldn't he choose good reasoning with good data? I guess maybe there wouldn't be a crowd then if it was good reasoning with good data. Uh, you know, I guess that's been the goal also of philosophers for thousands of years, perhaps longer. Perhaps that is the question for humanity. 
error detection and correction, how to qualify good reasoning and validate data or the, the inputs, reproduction, food acquisition, etc. All that is a life support system for the question. We all have, or at least I'm aware of, the prejudice that masses are idiots while in a group, but can be intelligent individually. This is sort of the crux of Gustav's book, but I'm still not convinced. Even though I've said it in the past and, and feel it rings true, I don't have enough evidence to say it is true. In fact, the more protests I go to, the more evidence I see of the mental diversity of the crowd. You know, their opinions on one side. The, the only thing the uniting them is the cause at hand. Perhaps the protesters I come across are all the... Uh, intellectual dark web manifesting itself <laughs> if you want to be accurate it's dangerous to stereotype any protester though some do specifically for ad hominem this gets me thinking of the uh, paradox of the uh, bearded neo-leftists if they believe there is nothing but power and totally disregard logic and reason they are certainly doomed to failure as logic, reason, and objective truths are essential, at least in some part, for power. I can't say entire essential, uh, entirely essential as many cults, religions, and crazy ideologies manage to last long enough to cause generations, 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 Jesus, I can't say that, generations of unnecessary destruction. Gustav writes that when affirmation has been sufficiently repeated and there is unanimity in this repetition, which is called a current of opinion, is then formed and the powerful mechanism of contagion intervenes. When there is enough repetition of affirmation, Gustav's concept of current of opinion is formed. This current of opinion is like... The, the circuit is created, the voltage is applied, and now the current is flowing. Gustav makes, uh, Gustav's model makes me think of people getting swept along the current, you know, with a few people holding onto the rocks, right? It could, it could be a very weak, shallow, slow stream. Either way, it's a, uh, it's dangerous to allow our opinions to be created by some unknown puppet master via current of opinion. So Gustav explains his current of opinion as like the uh, mass hysteria of a herd of sheep that experience. While uh, a powerful force, perhaps a tool, the crowd individually are analogous to the prey, the targets. Gustav's leaders of crowds are apparently of the crowd, so there, uh, there naturally isn't a predator in Gustav's system that he mentions in the form of a human at least so it, it's odd that the uh, etymology of predator comes from uh, latin what is it uh, praeda which means plunder booty uh, and prey so a predator steals things steals life right a predator a predator one that comes before Maybe reading too much into this word, right? So he claims in a crowd of people, all emotions are very rapidly contagious. All emotions, right? Key, it's emotions are rapidly contagious. 
He doesn't cite any evidence, but uses this assertion as an explanation for why madness is contagious. Who said madness is contagious? I'm pretty sure, <laughs> you know, that's not what panned out to be true. I don't think insanity is, or madness as he calls it, is in fact contagious. Although there is uh, folio du and all these other types of things, right? So... He wrote, and also mass, right? So is it, is it, again, is it contagion for mass hysteria and mass psychosis? Some people argue they don't even exist or that folio du doesn't exist, right? But clinically people said it did exist. So, mm, <laughs> mm, right. He wrote the uh, frequency among madness uh, or the frequency of madness among doctors who are specialists for the mad is notorious, <laughs> Right. So apparently psychologists went crazy back in the day because, you know, madness is contagious. <laughs> if, if it was notorious in Gustav's day that, you know, there's no evidence of that being true today or even true in his day that I'm aware of. You know, there's, I've heard people talk about, you know, psychologists are all insane. And well, I kind of agree that the soft science people are probably crazy and not logical and not critical and not scientists, but, uh, the fact is well known um, is is not proof of it being true, you know, at any time. Oh, it's well known. Does, is that evidence? It might be evidence, but it's not proof that it's true. Just because somebody claims something is well known, or even if it is well known, doesn't make it true, right? It was well known that the earth was flat, right? So Gustav definitely loses uh, some credibility points here. Unless, of course, he's joking. And he's just busting the balls of his colleagues who are most likely the audience for this book, which is possible. So he claims uh, agoraphobia is communicable from humans to animals. <laughs> you know, I have to call bullshit, right? Where's your evidence? You know, fear. Sure. Fear can be contagious. Someone losing their shit can spread fear in certain situations, but phobias, you know, where's the evidence? Right? Unless it's a joke, could be he could be joking, right? tongue in cheek. Right? There have been studies of human mimicry, and Gustav claims imitation is an effect of contagion, the current of opinion. I think it's it's the other way around. While humans are predisposed to mimic each other, the uh, that predisposition is hacked for the effect of contagion. I shouldn't say hacked because Gustav's model doesn't, you know, have a, uh, a calculating predator, according to him. Not to say that there isn't, even though he says there's a leader, they are of the crowd, so they aren't an external calculating predator, according to his theory, his model. So he claims fashion is so powerful because of the human tendency to imitation, whether in the matter of opinions, ideas, literary manifestations, or merely of dress, how many persons are bold enough to run counter to the fashion? Well, today, a lot of people are, uh, well, it depends on the fashion, depends on what they're talking about, the fashion of what, making things, the fashion of, you know, clothes. Uh, Gustav is conflating apples and oranges again. His, his current of opinion results, according to him, only after there has been sufficient repetition of assertions or affirmations. So if what he's claiming is true, everyone should share the same opinions, tastes, 
in books, in dress, everything should be the same if everybody follows the same fashion. No one would dare challenge the fashion and do something different, which we know clearly is not the case. The history of humanity refutes Gustav's claim. While we do have a tendency to mimic, this is clearly not a compelling force. You know, equally on all people or all situations, there are, you know, clearly many people bold enough to run counter to the fashion. So Gustav speaks in overgeneralizations yet again, which are clearly bullshit to anyone with at least half a brain. So let's give him the benefit of the doubt and use the principle of charity on his claims here. He could mean that some people who are more vulnerable to mimicry will go along with the current of opinion. An opinion that is apparent from the sources uh, they view as the authority without examining these opinions critically. Let me say that clearly. So an opinion that is apparent from the sources they view as the authority without examining these opinions critically. So that, that is a statement that seems more reasonable. But that's not exactly what he's saying. That's me interpreting what he, he could be saying using the principle of charity. Right, so assuming this current of opinion has a gradient of intensity, uh, strength, its, its relative strength and weaknesses should also be taken into consideration instead of viewed as a digital on-off or a binary on-off. So we all know someone whose opinions are uncritical regurgitations of the fake news or uh, what some scummy politician has said. Probably most people think, you know, they think that, but the fact that some of us are wrong, and that is most likely those who are uncritical thinkers, although all of us are wrong at times, we have to recognize that, right? And just calling ourselves critical thinkers does not make us critical thinkers, nor does thinking we are smarter than others make us smarter than others. You know, we are probably not smarter than others. Right? Everybody has their little different nicks and, and areas of specialty and other people. Everybody knows something more than you in certain fields, right? Or certain things. So those who struggle to find a solution have a better chance of finding it than those who certain, you know, are certain that they know. So let's assume Gustav is writing hyperbolically. He's joking, you know, with quite a lot of exaggeration. Otherwise, we should have to dismiss almost everything he claims. <laughs> so the guy's got to be joking. Or is he? Right? Maybe not. Since he uh, may have influenced so many people that drastically affected the history of humanity since there may be some truths to his unfounded assertions or affirmations unless his influence is only coincidental or perhaps just assumed because everybody has to read this book, right? Who, who wants to get into manipulating people, right? The, he makes uh, an interesting claim. Uh, it is by examples, not arguments that crowds are guided. So you just got to give them anecdotes and they believe it. Right. Anecdotal evidence. Again, anecdotal evidence is not proof. It might be even not considered evidence. It could be evidence, right? It, well, I guess it has to be evidence. That, you know, it's a case of one. Right. So he makes sure that the crowd appear to be, again, it depends on the situation when you're talking about that. If you say, if you saw, uh, you know, that person kill that person, it's, it's not an anecdote. It's, you know, that's all the evidence you need. You saw that guy kill that guy. Right. So it's not like a, a statistical thing. Right. Right. 
where that guy is not necessarily a murderer. He only killed one person. Right? He didn't kill everybody. He's only killed you know a fraction percent of the planet. So technically, he's not really a murderer. That's <laughs> not how it works. Right? Again, so so his his uh, his claim about uh, examples, not arguments, that crowds are guided. It's, it's just an assertion. There's no proof or evidence of that. Now there may be examples of it. I don't know but he's not giving it to us, right? So he sure makes the crowd appear to be mindless zombies or inferior animals, subhumans that can only be taught by example. And maybe he's right. Maybe his crowd are that stupid. Maybe the people that fall prey to that are in fact as, you know, dumb as he says, the stupid as he says. So he claims, I shouldn't say dumb because dumb technically means, you know, you don't speak doesn't mean you're low in intelligence. It just means you can't. It's funny how we use these words. So he claims that every period there, assist, there exists a small number of individuals which react, ooh, ooh, Marxist reactionaries, right? So at every point there exists a small number of individuals which react upon the remainder and they and are imitated by the unconscious mass. So is it the reactionaries that are imitated by the mindless mass? Ooh, got to be careful what words we're using here, right? So is he differentiating between the crowd and non-crowd? No, he's just giving his crowd categories, right? So there's influencers and followers, like how his leaders of the crowd are of the crowd. So there are little subtle domains in the crowd where the leaders pop out, right? A small number of influences impacting the rest of the people. It's clearly another assertion. It's possible, even probable, but it's not proven in, in the specifics of the situation. I, we don't even know if his crowd actually exist, right? There are people who are uncritical, obviously, but still it's not proven that a Gustavian crowd even exist, despite a lot of people using that as a given and uh, dictating their uh, propaganda programs or, or uh, advertising campaigns based on that or politicians ad hominem people knowing that it's going to challenge their prestige and therefore lower their credibility despite them looking bad for using ad hominems right they know that it's worse for the person they're attacking so whether that's true or not i don't know it seems to work on a certain population certain chunk of the population it appears to be the case i don't know if it actually is or not right but appearances are not facts could be you know um what's the word phantom connections right phantom connections well it doesn't matter so today we recognize the limits and scope of the effects of influencers on the rest of society there is no influencer who reaches the entirety of society even the grand poobah joe rogan has a finite reach so let's infer gustav meant the limited circle affected by that specific influencer so let's see what he wrote again it is critical that these influencers should not be in too pronounced disagreement with received ideas so there we have it the fracturing of society's opinions limits the scope of any influencer like in canada today <clears throat> When the legacy media carries the despotic propaganda of the petty tyrant in office, who uh, those who don't receive 
the idea of tyranny are unaffected by the current of opinion. <laughs> the more it is repeated, the more others are repelled by it. That's my assertion. So Gustav writes that if the opinions are too different, the influence is nil. And for this very reason, men who are superior to their epoch, 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 is it epic or epoch or both are generally without influence on it epic epoch so if your views are too different to the uh to the received ideas of the day your your influence is nil on the the crowd right there'll be fringe uh radicals perhaps that might share your views but you on a mass scale you will have no effect so it's the quintessential even if you're right right so like einstein in his earlier years people were laughing at him so the quintessential man ahead of his time so assuming you know society ever catches up to their time which they did with einstein you know which is in no way guaranteed with a lot of you know philosophical people it might be generations later or maybe never if they're even right so what exactly does Gustav mean by superior? Does he mean they have more insight that is objectively true? I would have to guess so. Otherwise, they would just be another crackpot. Not to say people can't follow the ideas of crackpots well after his time. People can follow any ideology. It doesn't have to be the best or even based on objective reality as religions and communism prove. So in essence, to be an influencer, one has to regurgitate what people are willing to believe, but not what is factually a true, a true, <laughs> not what is factually true, according to Gustav. So it doesn't matter if it's true. It doesn't matter if it's false. It just has to be within the realms of what people are willing to believe within their limits of belief, within their belief limiter. So the targets need to be agog, according to Gustav. Agog, agog for those of you who were born this century means to be very eager or curious to hear or see something. I was agog. I'm curious to see what it is. I'm such, I'm so agog. Why is that word gone, right? It's just gone. I don't hear agog used anymore, right? So a kid is agog about finding out what they got for their birthday. Another one of those words we, we rarely use, but uh, we should as it's uh, a critical concept for manipulation, you know, making the targets agog. It's one of their techniques. I need to make this target agog in order to soften them up to you, you know, manipulate them. So, but we can just pretend the word doesn't exist and just stop using it. Don't use agog anymore. <laughs> agog. Agog. Gustav is essentially saying that the reason why the opinion has to be close to the target's uh, belief is because of our limits of belief. And the, the limiter is the reason why cultures have, uh, some cultures have little impact on others and, uh, you know, who are outside their circle of belief. So they just don't believe what the other culture is telling them. It's beyond their realms of belief. So they have no influence. They're just like, oh, that's the others. They have weird beliefs. So, which is, it's just an affirmation, but it does ring true. And I'll put it in the plausible category, but given different cultures have different impacts on each other, and we would have to assume 
the impact of one culture's belief is currently undetermined if the other culture does not base its beliefs on logic and reason, which Gustav claims. So it could have a massive impact or none at all, depending on the culture. Perhaps in that situation, repetition softens the other culture and they slowly accept and perhaps adopt the beliefs of a once alien belief system. How do religions spread? How do religions replace other religions, right? Seeing how uh, Central and South America have deeply em embraced the alien beliefs of Christianity, it would appear that this is the case. Given that everything that we personally do not know at this moment is therefore alien knowledge to us, our willingness to believe may have some impact as well as how close that information is to our current schemata. There are many things that are not provable and we are vulnerable to repetition if we don't put up our critical hat or put on our critical hat when we hear stuff right over and over and over again. We absorb concepts that be they static or dynamic. <laughs> what is a dynamic concept? Well, time is a static concept that represents something changing, but the concept of time itself does not change, or does it? I mean, once we hear about time dilation, you know, in Einstein, our concept of time does change. So I guess it is a dynamic concept. I guess all concepts could be dynamic concepts if we learn a little bit more about them or the, the concept itself changes as we expand our understanding of a concept. It does change. So all concepts can be considered dynamic, I suppose. So can the concept of static change? <laughs> Not the word, the concept. I don't know. The concept of static not changing can that concept change to be something else i don't think so could be i don't know i can think of it so gustav claims reciprocal imitation Reci reciprocal imitation reciprocity given enough time will create a nation of people another gustavian affirmation shared values that make up a people of a nation may come from mimicry even though Gustav was adamant earlier in the book that values are from one's genetics and cannot be learned. Remember, you can't learn things. Everything you know has to be from your genetics. There's no instruction. Gustav's elitism appears when he describes the people who escape the influence of imitation. Ooh, the elites. Such as philosophers, learned men, and men of letters Thought and style have a family air, which enables the, the age to which they belong to be immediately recognized. It is not necessary to talk for long with an individual to attain a thorough knowledge of what he reads, of his habitual occupations, and of the surroundings amid which he lives. I don't know. He's talking about a group of people his demographic who escape imitation and yet explicitly said fashion is imitation and refers to the group as those within a thought and style thought and style could mean a unique fashion no well an individual could have a unique style or fashion 
if that was the case, then Gustav could not use that individual style to attain a thorough knowledge about everything about that person, right? They would, that would imply that everyone with a unique style are the same as each other, which means their styles are not unique because <laughs> the word unique means one, right? <laughs> so Gustav doesn't mention zeitgeist, but it would, uh, it would be uh, evidence of mass imitation of opinion or current of opinion which is odd as the the collective tastes can happen in unison like how people once liked a certain tv show uh, but who today find it passe but so do their children who never really even watched the show in the first place you know there's time-worn zeitgeist by zeitgeist i mean the general culture climate or mood of an era an epoch i think zeitgeist translates zeitgeist to time ghost, zeitgeist, geist is ghost, right? Zeit, time ghost, I don't know. Instead of using zeitgeist, Gustav uses genius or uh, the masses or nation, which are not synonymous. Genius can mean a, an identifying character or spirit. If it is the genius of a group at some time or moment, it could be interpreted as their zeitgeist. It appears Gustav thinks they are static, even though the concept of zeitgeist would or should have been known by Gustav. He claims that contagion from his current of opinion is so powerful that it forces upon individuals not only certain opinions, but certain modes of thinking as well. So not just their opinions, but how they think. So according to Gustav, when you are under the influence of an idea, it is not a model that you hold as plausible. You believe it uncritically. It feels true to you. Gustav is just telling us that he is not critical and goes by the lowest form or of, of reason, which is abduction, which is a best guess. <laughs> so to break the spell of mass hysteria or contagion is simple question it where's the proof is something else possible or likely do we have all the evidence or sufficient evidence is it sufficient to come to the conclusion that they're claiming <laughs> gustav claims contagion is the cause of contempt in which at a given period certain works are held which a few years later for the same reason are admired by those who were foremost in criticizing them <laughs> well this is not a case of we know better this is a case of we now know different again just assertions by gustav <clears throat> the opinions of the crowd at the pub or wherever are a result of affirmation, repetition, and contagion. He claims they are no different to the founders of Christianity and the socialists spreading their garbage from pub to pub. And Voltaire had observed that Christianity, for more than a hundred years, it was only embraced by the vilest riffraff. <laughs> 
So is Gustav now claiming those who are susceptible to contagion are only the vilest riffraff? Or is this just a passive-aggressive jab at Christians? He claims uh, contagion spreads from the popular classes to the higher classes. <laughs> Elitism. Implication is popular is lower, right? So at what well, goes to show that the elites are not very popular, are they? <laughs> so they can't be by definition. So if you are an elite, you are not popular. <laughs> All, right. All right. So he claims contagion spreads from the popular to the higher classes. Uh, and that, uh, <clears throat> and that every, uh, opinion adopted by the populace always ends in implanting itself with great vigor in the highest social strata however obvious be the absurdity of the triumphant opinion that is a uh, that is a sure is a, a quite a claim right so what does what does this even mean vigor right we know these words mean vigor is is effort energy and enthusiasm force right with great vigor right so the highest social strata adopted the opinions of the lowest riffraff with great enthusiasm and force <laughs> right so hmm. so i i would argue that uh, if we do it's not every and always Gustav writes, the reaction of the low upon the higher social classes is the most curious, right? His assumption, right, that, that, that is from the low to the high is he finds most curious. Owing to the circumstance that the beliefs of the crowd always have their origin to a greater or lesser extent in some higher idea which has often remained without influence in the sphere in which it was evolved. <laughs> so now they're at least capable of uh, higher ideas. So elitist, so number one, the, the elitist categorization of society into higher and lower monolithic classes. Two, assertion that opinions go from lower to higher with no evidence three implica implication that uh, the lower classes are incapable of higher thought and creating higher ideas on their own four protects his ego with the assertion that ideas come from of course the higher classes <laughs> in my life experience ideas do come from books but mostly from doers now Gustav's claims that the leaders are doers and and not thinkers right but my experience indicates that doers are also thinkers they have to be right to come up with solutions right if they if they have a problem you know they have to solve it right if they haven't read about it they have to reinvent it and this is the the great human superpower of coming up with a solution to an unprecedented problem. This is what humans are good at. The more experienced, generally, the greater the stockpile of ideas. So I'm not downplaying uh, a, a backlog or a, a, a back uh, catalog of ideas. The more ideas you have, the more creative ideas you can pick from, right? But 
but that doesn't mean that just because you have a lot of ideas, you're going to be more creative. You know what I mean? A more, uh, if you have a larger schemata, doesn't mean that you are going to be more creative. The fact that you've read a thousand books doesn't mean you're going to be creative. This means you have a lot of books to pick from if you even remember the crap that you read. So these ideas don't come from so much a manufacturing setting, even though they can. And I do have a friend whose father came up with an idea for the line and, uh, I'm not going to say what crappy car manufacturing company it was, uh, but uh, he got he got rewarded, and uh, it was a good chunk of change, I guess, back in the day. So, so those the line workers can, of course, come up with ideas. He did. There's a, a, an anecdote that proves that they can, uh, but it's generally more in the prototyping or even the repair setting. Like, oh, how can we come up with a better way? This keeps breaking. Let's modify this to make it better. Let's try this, right? So these new creative ideas and then experiment right back in feedback. But uh, some, some, you know, farm shops uh, where you need a device that will do X, some new thing that you're trying out, right? You, you have to prototype it and come up with a solution and make this machine. And this, this may be dying now with the larger farms, but growing up working on farms as a kid, there was a lot of uh, prototyping and, uh, you know, jury rigging and making uh, new equipment, you know, welding and fabricating and grinding and painting it to look all pretty, you know? So, uh, the, like the concept of, uh, this, this reminds me of the nuance, the concept between an explorer versus an adventurer a lot of people don't differentiate but adventurers are doing adventures you know the but others may have previously done the exact same thing whereas explorers are doing adventures that no one has done before they are exploring like captain kirk he didn't he didn't go on a, just adventures he was exploring space right going where no one has gone before or no man back in his day right so what makes them, you know, the, the, the doing the new thing where no one has gone before is what makes them explorers, not just adventurers. They are also adventurers, but they are also explorers. So those of us who, uh, you know, may get uh, a ticket to uh, go up into space and you just circle around the planet, you're not an explorer. You are an adventurer because there are, Yuri Gagarin was the first explorer to venture into space that we know of human <laughs> so that's not to say that unique and fresh ideas don't come from you know youth uh you know an intelligent and creative uh youthling can come up with fantastic and novel ideas gustav has uh some logical inconsistencies here he claims that an idea is created by some high class philosopher that you know that idea is then taken by Leaders and agitators who distort it create a sect which distorts it more, then propagate it to the masses who deform it still more. Then it becomes a popular truth where it returns to its source in the high class, then claims after all this distortion that it is, in, uh, that it is intelligence that shapes the world, but very indirectly. So, again, this is... He, he gave that whole path that was good that wasn't me interpreting that was Gustav's path of how the ideas go so he finishes with the original philosophers uh having long turned to dust before the fruit of the reflection ends by triumphing so you you see where I'm going with this 
the the old high class philosopher idea is so distorted that it cannot be considered the same idea. So how does Gustav claim it ends by triumphing? Again, it really feels like Gustav is just just fucking with us. <laughs> His audience. He's trying to be illogical as as that's his mode of, of manipulation. Or is, is it a joke, right? Is he just being sarcastic? I don't know. But uh, it's very not uh, rational, right? So while Gustav's hypothesis about affirmation, repetition, and contagion, or current of opinion is possible, maybe even likely, it's just conjecture. 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 That's a funny word. Conjecture. Conjecture. Conjecture? Conjecture. 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 <laughs> Anyways, it's just conjecture, as are his claims that all ideas come from his higher classes. So what is conjecture? What does that even mean? An opinion or conclusion formed on the basis of incomplete information. Conjectures are... Great thing, so long as we always remember that they are just conjectures. Conjecture. British conjecture. So we've been talking about um, leaders of crowds and their means of persuasion. Uh, what else is there? There was means of action of the leaders, which is affirmation, repetition, and contagion. And now Gustav's final point on leaders, which he calls prestige. So Gustav calls prestige a necessary but mysterious force for an idea. We will see how Gustav defines prestige, but first let's take a look at the objective definition of prestige today. So today it is widespread respect and admiration felt for someone or something on the basis of a perception of their achievements or quality. I'm like a quality again, <clears throat> going back to Zen, the order mark Zen in the, uh, the, uh, what is it? Zen in the, uh, art of motorcycle, me uh, mechanics. Fuck. Don't read it. So Gustav goes on for about 10 pages explaining prestige. He, he wrote that the ideas propagated by affirmation, repetition, and conjunction acquire in time, this mysterious force called prestige. And that the ruling power in the world, be it an idea or a man, has enforced its authority by the force of prestige. So those take note, right? Those people who are uh, want to uh, manipulate people will be alarm bells going, prestige, prestige, what is this prestige? So how do we destroy it from our enemies and how do we create it for ourselves? So... He claims that everyone knows the meaning of the word prestige, but the word is employed in ways too different for it to be easy to define it. So what he's really saying is that he's using it in a way that is not the normal definition. Since Gustav is the one choosing to use the word prestige, how others use it is not relevant to his use unless he is using it in a non-normal way. So therefore, this is a not normal way. And since he is apparently attempting to make his definition vague, it feels like 
the old technique of manipulation where vagueness is desired by the manipulator to get the target to not be able to make sense of it and therefore just take the manipulator's word for it or connect the dots in some arbitrary way that makes sense to them, which isn't factual. Yet Gustav claims prestige may invoke sentiments, emotionally based opinions of admiration or fear, and it may have neither. So let's assume he means respect, admiration meaning respect. Despite our, our uh, recognized definition of prestige being respect and admiration, not respect or admiration. So Gustav has deviated uh, from its use uh, using um, prestige in a, so he's using it in a different way. Though I've heard it used today to mean famous, wealthy, perceived power, and perhaps demanding respect, which is not the definition as far as I know. I don't think, you know, it's, oh, look at that. The person has look at that prestigious house, you know, that demands respect. Mm, not necessarily. Right? That's not what it means as far as I know. So he rates the, uh, the greatest prestige is possessed by the dead, such as Alexander the Great, Caesar, or Buddha. So he defines prestige as a domination exercised on our mind by an individual work or idea. A domination. This domination entirely paralyzes our critical faculty and fills our soul with astonishment and respect. So there's your respect. So he definitely uses prestige to mean respect. But he's saying this prestige, uh, it, it entirely paralyzes our critical thinking. And it fills our soul with astonishment and respect. So I can't remember the details right now, but astonishment, I think, is a, a factor in brainwashing, right? <gasps> wow, look at that, right? I'm astonished. The, uh, the oldest dictionary I have is from the 1950s. And it has prestige right between prestigitator the sleight of hand, and uh, prestigitation, which is juggling. Prestigi prestigitation. <laughs> Can't really pronounce it. So according to his book, prestige comes from the Latin prestigium, or a delusion or illusion. The first definition is from 1881, so a few years before Gustav wrote his book. An illusion, a conjuring trick a deception, an imposture. The second definition from 1829, even older, is a blinding or dazzling influence, magic, glamour, influence, or reputation derived from previous character, achievements, or success. So these definitions were known to Gustav in 1895. Gustav writes how his, this uh, sentiment of prestige is inexplicable, but the same kind of fascination to which a magnetized person magnetized is subjected and that neither gods, kings, nor women have ever reigned without it. So a magnetized person, what do you think he means? Someone with an attractive or magnetic personality, perhaps physically attractive as well. So like some movie star from decades ago, 
when they used to have prestige. Not like today, since we now hear the idiotic celebrities on social media or, or watch the savage idiots like Will Smith destroy any illusion of prestige in one slap. You know, we are living in the age of disenchantment. Gustav claims there are two types of prestige in terms of leaders of crowds, acquired prestige and personal prestige. Acquired prestige comes from name, fortune, and reputation. Personal prestige essentially is peculiar to the individual. Peculiar. So I assume intrinsic to their nature or at least perceived behavior. So acquired prestige, he also calls artificial prestige. And, and it's the, he claims it's the most common type. Gustav claims that it comes from a certain position, uh, possessing a fortune or simply bearing a title. I don't know if it's because the times have changed, but I certainly don't respect or admire someone simply because of a position they hold, how much money they have, or what title they have. Take Roger Penrose. There are many other people who have the same position that he has, more money than him, greater grandeur, grandeur titles than he has, but he demands respect and admiration due to his competence and intelligence. If someone has more money or, or a grander title, they certainly do not merit more prestige simply based on that. Gustav wrote how uh, Pascal said, without their wigs and robes, judges would be stripped of half their authority and that the most unbending socialist is still impressed by the sight of the Prince of Marquis. <laughs> I call bullshit. Would you be impressed by a Nigerian prince? If you are, you're a target. So the same could be said of opinions, literary or artistic works. I've already called out how boring war and peace is in an earlier podcast, yet some morons view it as a prestigious work. Oh, war and peace. Oh, blah, blah, blah. So boring. So once again, Gustav's uh, absolutes are bogus but it's a gradient and i can see that prestige does exist for some and not for others how many uh, you know how much any one person has is dynamic and changes at different rates for different people and it's literally not up to the person it's up to the person who perceives them this reminds, reminds me of the time I got uh, box tickets to watch the Toronto Maple Leafs i am not a fan of hockey and so we were up at the box seats, eating all the, you know, the free food and stuff they have up there, you know, drinking. It was a good time. And all these, uh, these quote, famous old hockey players come walking in, you know, meet and greet and shake their hands. I didn't know how, <laughs> who, who any of these guys were, right? And I think they knew that. So they didn't have any prestige for me. I felt kind of bad that, you know, I'm like, hey, man, how's it going? Yeah, okay, whatever. You know, I just want to eat my shrimp. You know what I mean? Got a deal. And, uh. So they, their prestige uh, would have been for the, 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 the person looking at them. Like in my condition, my condition, my condition of not liking hockey, I, I didn't, they didn't have any prestige for me. They were just old dudes, you know, with limps and whatever, right? Anyways, so popularity may be an indicator of prestige and we can measure the popularity of some organizations. 
we can measure, for example, how 90% of people that used to watch CNN no longer respect it as a viable news source or even a source of entertainment as they've stopped listening or paying attention to it. CNN has lost all respect and admiration from those viewers. It has lost its prestige. It lost its reputation is in the gutter. So Gustav makes an obviously uh, false claim that old literary works obtain prestige from the accumulated repetitions. If that were true, all old books would become classics. And I own many books from the 1800s that are forgotten from forgotten authors and are literally worthless. Same goes for old movies, celebrities. I don't know or care to know about celebrities from the 1920s or 30s or, or any modern ones for that matter. My point is that time has forgotten 99% of the celebrities from past eras. There are a select few books, ideas, or people that do have prestige, but simply being around long enough is not sufficient to create that. Granted, Gustav said repetition while singing the national anthem every morning in school has not given that song any prestige for me or anyone I know. I think the American national anthem is way cooler than the uh, Canadian one. At least it tells a story. The Canadian anthem is about groveling to the crown and, and being commanded to do shit, right? It's an anthem of the dominated and it's horrible. It's state created and it's a propaganda song as most national anthems are to be fair to Gustav he is perhaps warning us that there are many old ideas works or people that have achieved prestige that we are no longer critical of and don't question or verify the their validity in our endangering of repeating or respecting without analysis and that's a fair point if that's the point he's actually making he mentions how people of his day would read Homer, are bored, and not say so. So, is Gustav not of his day? Did he not read Homer, 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 and is he not now writing that it is boring? So his words are self-refuting, right? He said people say read it and think it's boring and don't say so. Well, here he literally said it published it and broadcast it to the world, right? That's kind of self-refuting. So, so using the principle of charity, a natural interpretation could be that he is reporting that most others read Homer and are bored and are don't say so, but that's not what he wrote, but to cut him some slack, we can interpret it that way. For me, Homer is intrinsically interesting because it's thousands of years old. It doesn't mean that we interpret the writing as true. It's just interesting because we are hearing thoughts and ideas from thousands of years ago. And how cool is that? You know, being bored with it is more a reflection of Gustav than it is of Homer's writing. Not that there's anything wrong with being bored with it or interested with it. Tastes vary. But we don't know how many people were actually bored reading Homer in Gustav's time and how how would he know if, as he claimed, nobody mentioned it? So nobody said they were bored. So how does he know if nobody's saying it? <laughs> right? Is he taking the, his personal opinion and extrapolating it onto everyone else? You know, is, the, uh, is that not a very fallacious way or a naive way to think? Well, I think this, so therefore everybody must be saying this and nobody else is talking about it, but they must be thinking it. 
How does he know if nobody mentions it? And if everybody mentioned it, then they're mentioning it. So <laughs> it's a catch-22. He can't know. So Gustav continues with how the Parthenon, the, the, the ruins of the Parthenon are so prestigious that it doesn't appear as it really is. But with all its accompaniment, accoutrements of historic memories, there is no human alive today who has all its accompanied historic memories. We just know, uh, to different degrees, some fragments of stories that have been passed down. Even still, those historic memories are how it really is. They are part of our interpretation of it. So to say it's not as it really is, these are, these are not different truths. They are different interpretations of the fragments of clues left behind. Obviously, our interpretations do not change what objectively happened all those years ago in the Parthenon. There are not different truths. There is one truth. Yet we all have different schemata and interpret things differently. This is not to say that concepts are not real things. They are despite us not being able to explain where concepts reside. The definition, some say, of course, your, your brain, right? The definition of objective reality is the shared place where things exist outside of our minds. And not just that, but a shared memory outside of our minds. It stores memory more consistently and more objectively than our minds do. Human memory is fallible. And the memory of objective reality apparently doesn't need a consciousness. And there's no consciousness that is holding the Parthenon in place or keeping the pyramids in existence. Or is there? <laughs> I don't think so. But there could be with all these crazy theories of uh, hologram crap, right? So there is an, uh, an internal consistency to this objective reality. A persistence, a memory, or at least a perception of it. If our memory is fallible which we have proven that it is, who's to say that the persistence of objective reality is any more real than what we collectively agree it is? If this reality has a dynamic past, there must be some mechanism that keeps the majority of people's memories in sync with that changing history, which is unlikely, right? Even objective reality is the, the, the fabrication of the inputs from our senses into the dark cavity of our skull. Those sense organs also exist in the fabricated objective reality, which is our interpretation of reality. So where do our minds exist? Where do concepts exist? Where does math exist? In objective reality, math is just scribblings of graphite on ink paper. Does pi exist? We can't calculate it to its final digit as it's an irrational number that goes on forever. It would take an infinite amount of time to calculate it. So does it even exist? <laughs> But the ratio of the diameter to its circumference does exist. We can see it on every circle. So pi does exist. Our society couldn't function without it, but we just use an approximation of it and only to usually a few decimal places. This is the same with objective reality. We won't know it to an infinite detail. We just use approximations to it. All these minds in interpreting things and feeding back from objective reality reality. Then we see those who do not, the delusional leaders and their followers who, for some reason, ignore the feedback from objective reality and just believe what they want in an unfounded manner. This is Gustav's crowd. Gustav claims the special characteristics of prestige is to prevent us seeing things as they are and to entirely paralyze our judgment.
He's trying to get to the mechanism of how people ignore the feedback of objective reality, how their judgment is impaired. Good judgment is therefore feeding back from objective reality as much as possible in this reality. Perhaps other realities exist and there are different rules for them, but in this one, feedback is key to having the best judgment. Having good judgment is key to getting what you want and getting what you want is power and power can be happiness depending on how you define these things, right? Then the key to power is feeding back to objective reality as much as possible. I guess that's why we as a society seem to be focusing on measurable differences or effects from different causes. The problem arises with complex systems and chaos theory that indicates a cause may have a completely unpredictable effect, like the wind from a butterfly's wings eventually causing a hurricane to form in one place as opposed to some other. Observations from the field of quantum appear to confirm chaos theory's unpredictability of specific outcome, and the best we can apparently do is make probable predictions for portions of a thing before the randomness of chaos takes over. The problem with this system is that something with a low probability can and still does happen. In fact, without the unlikely probability of quantum tunneling, our sun would not work and we would not be here talking about it. So unlikely events are not only happening, they are critical to our existence. And conversely, just because something has a high probability doesn't mean that it is going to happen. So is Gustav's special characteristic of prestige blinding our good judgment an intentionally designed mechanism of manipulation or a result of natural selection? Gustav doesn't say. Regardless, not seeing people or things accurately due to prestige is plausible. We've all experienced this with organizations, celebrities, and others, and only notice it when it become, when we become disenchanted with them. In fact, it's very unlikely that we can see anyone completely accurately to their finest details, never mind prestige fogging the lens. Gustav wrote that as a rule, crowds and individuals always stand in need of ready-made opinions all subjects and the popularity of the opinion is independent of the measure of truth or error that they contain and it's solely regulated by the prestige prestige apparently is a pretty powerful thing according to gustav so this overgeneralization has to be a joke he's saying everyone are idiots and grab hold of ready-made opinions based solely on their popularity. Everyone would include his readers. That's why I think he's having a bit of a laugh, calling his readers idiots, right? Giving the benefit of the doubt and, and using the principle of charity, we will assume he does not mean everyone, despite him as writing everyone. Let's assume he is not intentionally insulting his readers for a laugh and is implying only the non-critical thinkers require ready-made opinions. Gustav's model would call this type of prestige the prestige of popular ready-made opinions, artificial or acquired prestige. 
It is not from the intrinsic quality of the opinion. It's from repetition, from the, uh, the old current of opinion. Just knowing about critical thinking is not sufficient. We have to work at it all the time. I was talking to a buddy just yesterday. He's a, a combat vet who was injured in battle, apparently. His mother is a university professor and made sure he knew all about the logical fallacies. So when we talk about logical fallacies, he and I are in total agreement. But he didn't seem to be critical of his own thoughts and opinions, and he falls for fallacies and assertions. He believes God or Jesus or someone is going to come back and kill two-thirds of all Jews. <laughs> when he said that, I was like, what? Right. So he, he, he might have been on pain meds. You know, he might have PTSD, but his reasoning is black and white and does not require proof or evidence despite his knowing of all the logical fallacies. He still falls uh, victim to logical fallacies and uncritical thinking and will not listen to opinions that vary from his assertions. He would uh, repeat himself when, I, when I'd start questioning him, like, you know, using the, uh, you know, assertions, and, and he would repeat himself like three times or four times, you know, saying the same thing over and over and over again, and it, it struck me as pretty odd. So it was like he was using repetition on himself to shore up his confidence about his statements or something. I don't know. So in the same conversation about logical fallacies, he claims Jesus was going to come back and kill two-thirds of all Jews. <laughs> I was like, what? So it was, I was, it was literally spooky. I was spooked how someone could jump from uh, post hoc ergo propter hoc, you know, the correlation causation fallacy to Jesus is going to come back and kill two-thirds of all Jews. So I'm assuming he got that from his church. You know, I don't know. Despite it being spooky, it's evidence that humans can be logical and critical thinkers about some things and then off the wall batshit crazy about others. So we need to try to not be batshit crazy. So despite, even if you study, even if I study, if we all study critical thinking, logical fallacies, doesn't mean uh, it's not sufficient to guarantee that we will use it. <laughs> so my wife was talking to this, uh, to a lady who was uh, not going to be taking uh, cancer treatment because she did not know how uh, the she did not know all the long-term adverse effects of the cancer treatment but without question she took the covid-19 vaccine despite not knowing the long-term adverse effects of that so left to her own devices she probably would have questioned uh, the COVID-19 vaccine, but due to fear, porn, propaganda, and manipulation, she was conditioned to not question it. So this is another example of a bizarre, inconsistent rationalization of humans when exposed to conditioning. When she was left to her own devices after the conditioning, she still questioned, you know, is this cancer treatment? What are the adverse long-term effects of it? What studies have been done, right? COVID-19 vaccine, I'll take it. You know, been brainwashed. I'll take it. I'm not going to question anybody who questions the adverse long-term effects is anti-vaxxer, right? Doesn't matter if they took it or not. So it doesn't, it's spooky how it does not change. This conditioning doesn't appears to not change 
all our patterns of inference, only those we would normally have been used when exposed to the now taboo subject or subject that we have been conditioned and manipulated to accept without question and the ready-made opinion. So Gustav claims these ready-made opinions are accepted simply because they have prestige. They may have been, uh, that may have been the case sometimes, but I believe there needs to be more conditioning for otherwise critical minds to accept and believe those ready-made opinions. Perhaps repetition and prestige is all that's needed for the, the bulk of the crowd. I don't know. Gustav's second form of prestige, which affects the opinion of the crowd, is personal prestige. Gustav doesn't explain how or know the mechanism of personal prestige. He only explains the result of it. So people could call this the, uh, you know, the, the factor. What is it? There's a TV show, uh, the X Factor or whatever. So they don't know it's the mysterious factor, the prestige, right? So, so he doesn't know he, what does he say here? I'm going to read a quote here. He says that it enables those possessed by to exercise a veritable magnetic fascination on those around them, despite being social equals and having no other ordinary means of domination, domination. So Gustav claims Buddha, Jesus, and Napoleon all had this personal prestige to a high degree. He wrote an interesting line. Gods, heroes, and dogmas win their way in the world on their own inward strength. They are not to be discussed. They disappear indeed as soon as discussed. Hmm. So while true sounding, uh, it sounds like a, you know, a, a a true sounding assertion at prima facie at first hearing, right? It's clear that discussing this dogmatic assertion appears to prove his point by disappearing as it's only an assertion, but then if it disappears, it's true. <laughs> so it's kind of a, yeah. So Gustav was clearly a joker, but on, on closer scrutiny, gods don't disappear simply from being discussed or else they would have gone away a long time ago. Heroes, too, don't go away when discussed, and dogmas, too, stick around. In fact, the discussion may be repetition, which reinforces the dogma. So what Gustav may have meant by discussing was questioning God's heroes and dogmas. Some will surely go away after critical questioning. Personal prestige, then, is intrinsic or learned to the character of the individual and the character is manifested by actions. So a person who demonstrates through competent actions, their merits, they will have personal prestige if it's widely accepted. The woke bigots will never acknowledge someone with personal prestige because woke bigots do not judge character based on merit or actions, but instead on skin color. So Gustav claims the spectrum of prestige goes from forming religions to dazzling your neighbors with a new coat. He claims prestige is the fundamental element of persuasion. So there you go. This is very important to manipulators. Prestige. It is not only important, it is the fundamental element in, pers in, in persuasion. So, but prestige can be attached to a thing being an idea, and, and it's imitated due to contagion. It can even be attached 
to a color palette or a fashion or mode of doing something. Old fashioned. He fashioned it. High fashion. He claims success and prestige are mutually requisite. Success and prestige are both required. If one goes, they both go. He also claims the moment prestige is called in question, it ceases to be prestige. Simply questioning things breaks their enchanted spell if they're based on nothing but bullshit and prestige. I say. It is plausible that the uncritical crowd would blindly follow someone, you know, based solely on prestige. But a critical person who uses metrics and evidence would be less likely to do so. I guess there's still a lot of people that, you know, follow idiotic actors, you know, or other celebrities, you know, based on their prestige and say, well, they say this, so therefore I like him. So I like him. What he says is true, right? Simply calling someone an expert is an attempt at granting prestige. Just calling them an expert. All right, so now, limitations of the variability of the beliefs and opinions of the crowds. What does that even mean? Limitations of the variability of beliefs and opinions of the crowds. Well, according to Gustav, the opinions of the crowd are variable, but limited in that variability. He uses the metaphor of the apparently fixed anatomy of a living being being malleable in the hands of a breeder or horticulturalist as a model for the unchangeable morals hardwired by genetics into an individual. We have variable opinions around those fixed morals, according to Gustav. So this is, this is a model by Gustav and it is not proven fact. It may be true, it may be false, but it's a model. Other equally great minds have claimed humans are born tabula rosa or with a blank slate. No disposition towards any opinion or morals. The fact that instincts exist should be enough to refute tabula rosa to a large extent. If some dogs are genetically or uh, intrinsically more aggressive or passive, why not humans or other animals? This is the nature-nurture argument yet again. Clearly, we both have learned behaviors and genetically wired predispositions. Most of us have the capacity to control our instinctive behaviors uh, on an immediate, short-term uh, nature. But perhaps we are unaware of our longer-term behaviors. You know, are migrating animals and insects aware that they are migrating? Or are they just doing it? Uh, you know, are we aware of what we are wired to do? You know, some people have, I've heard people claim that uh, humans are wired to actually extract gold from the earth. <laughs> that's kind of crazy, but it's what humans kind of do, right? Everything else is sort of based around that. <clears throat> so migrating creatures do it because of the seasons. Uh, they are most likely, uh, they most likely are unaware that they are on a planet that has a tilt which orbits a star and that tilt causes different seasons. So has natural selection randomly giving them the want to migrate based on some trigger, day length, temperature, elevation of sun at noon, who knows? Are we wired to build cities and extract minerals from the earth for some reason? 
you know, or that we're not cognizant of, you know, who knows? Are all humans even wired for that? Is that just a, an anomalous mutation in our wiring with no actual benefit? There are benefits from Western civilization. It does allow us to specialize and have resources to devote to acquiring new knowledge and techniques of building and doing things. What are we wired to do? There's evidence going back a few thousand years that we have the desire to learn new things, new truths, but there's also a category of people that appear wired to do what they were told by their superiors. They may not like it, they may bitch about it, but they still do it. Gustav's crowd is a subtype of this category. Humanity has used slaves from pre-civilization up to even today in a few backward nations. Are worker bees considered slaves to their, their, their colony? They're not paid. You know, what benefits do they get? They work till they die, right? So with universal basic income, digital ID, and digital currency, slavery of humanity is going to come back with a vengeance. The state today is already claiming it owns citizens' bodies by mandating what gets injected into our bodies. We do not own them. We do not have sovereignty or autonomy if someone else is determining what goes into our bodies. Like Putin said, you're either a colony or you're sovereign. <laughs> Who controls a thing owns it. If we can't control our own bodies, we are slaves to those who do control our bodies. Getting back to Gustav and our long-term wired behaviors. I call bullshit that our morals and beliefs are fixed since people can and do change throughout our lives. Granted, there may be a limit to how much we do change, but circumstance and manipulation can change someone radically. It sounds idiotic when you say out loud that a person grabs an idea and holds it for their entire generation. Is it perhaps possible that in Gustav's day, Frenchmen were so narrow-minded and bigoted? Perhaps. This is what Gustav claimed, and he was a Frenchman of his day. So <laughs> who might argue? So he breaks these ideas down to religious and nationalist principles, democratic and social ideas as the static ideas, and romanticism, naturalism, and myst uh, mysticism as the changeable ideas. He claims the static ideas are the ones that form nations. While it may not seem like people change religions or beliefs, People do convert, find religion, lose religion, perhaps find it again. This is a moot point from Gustav's point of view. He claims it is easy to implant transient opinions into the crowd and difficult or impossible to implant lasting opinions over a short time, i.e. several years. Anyone who lived through the COVID-19 pandemic saw firsthand how easy it was for the political establishment to implant lasting opinions into the bulk of people in a short time using fear as the catalyst. The us and them technique was and still is being used with maximum intensity by the state and their lackey news media. Anyone who does not agree with or even dares question the dogmatic narrative that is being pushed are piled into a collective, homogenous, branded stereotype, which any thinking person would see if they weren't brainwashed idiots. So the prestige of the claimed experts by the state 
was sufficient for the bulk to not question, demand proof, or even evidence. And the vilification of those who do question was done with appeals to emotion, fear, and religious-styled us-them propaganda. And it worked. And it worked well. The proof is in the pudding. What blows me away is that it was most effective on those who call themselves educated. Fallacious appeals to intelligence was used with great effect. If you are smart, you believe what we say unquestioningly. Only redneck rubes would dare question us. Therefore, if you do question us, you are not educated and a redneck rube, regardless of how many postdocs you have or what your speciality is. <laughs> this actually worked, and it works, indicating that those who fell for it the hardest are the stupidest people who think that they are smarter than others, but are clearly not. God, they look like fools. Gustav claims that lasting beliefs are difficult to uproot once implanted which is kind of an idiotic thing to say. Clearly, if he's calling them or defining the group of beliefs as lasting beliefs, they would be difficult to uproot, idiot. Right? If you're calling them lasting, obviously, dummy. So it appears that when we are exposed to convincing evidence contrary to our deep beliefs, we either ignore the evidence, making us delusional, or we believe the evidence and experience a psychological shock which can vary from humor to trauma. To paraphrase Mark Twain, it's easier to fool someone than to convince them they've been fooled. Gustav claims the beginning of a rebellion signifies the end of a belief. By what percentage of the population? Clearly not everyone is a monolith that shares the same beliefs, though that's Gustav's definition of the crowd. He claims it's easy to pinpoint the beginning of the end of a belief when someone questions it. He wrote, The precise moment at which a belief is doomed is easily recognizable. It is the moment when its value begins to be called in question. Every general belief being little else than a fiction, it can only survive on the condition that it not be subjected to examination. So there are different ways to interpret this, but since I'm not an apologist for Gustav, I will interpret what he actually wrote and call bullshit. In objective reality, simply examining a belief does not destroy it, even if it's a false belief. But he says every general belief being little else than a fiction. So <laughs> that's, that's vague, right? If, if, if that were true, simply questioning any scientific theory would be sufficient to prove it false, which is an idiotic stance as there are some things in this world that are true. Questioning and examination of a thing may in fact strengthen a belief if that belief is true, which is so self-evident that it should not need to be said. But a quick look at the smart people in academia who write such idiotic sentences as beliefs are lies means I have to actually say it. For one thing, lies are intentional attempts at deception, where beliefs are simply what one takes as being true, 
which can be wrong, but beliefs can also be true. Idiots. If an examination exposes insufficient evidence, that also does not prove falsity. It just shows inconclusive evidence, which does not prove or disprove anything other than the thing was not proven true. The precise moment at which a belief is doomed is easily recognizable. It is the moment when its value begins to be called in question. Every general belief being little else than fiction, it can only survive on the condition that it not be subjected to examination. So he writes, the precise moment at which a belief is doomed, not a false belief, just a belief. So we could infer that he that since the belief is doomed, that it is a false belief, but he didn't write that. Since being and is are synonymous, that every belief being little else than fiction sounds like every general belief is little else than fiction. He's not writing every general belief that is little else than fiction. He's saying all general beliefs are little else than fiction. Even using the principle of charity to interpret Gustav's uh, line, every general belief being little else than fiction, to mean every bullshit belief will collapse upon examination, is also a false claim. A lot of false beliefs persist despite examination as per delusions, mass psychosis, hysterias, and phobias. A person may know they have an irrational fear of something, but that knowledge does not always remove the fear. Gustav claims that when a belief is severely shaken, the institutions to which it has given rise hang around for a little while, retaining their strength and slowly disappear. But once a belief has completely lost its force, all that rested upon it is soon involved in ruin. This is just an assertion by Gustav, but the logic would mean that even if a belief in something true has lost its force, all the institutions based on it would collapse. This could happen with deception and manipulation. He claims this happens to nations as they cannot stand if one of the pillars has collapsed, their pillars being core beliefs. The lost nation will continue collapsing until it has alighted or come to land on a new general or core belief. This is, of course, not a fact. He cites no evidence or proofs and just asserts it. This claim appears to be the core tenet of the globalists' Great Reset. The Great Reset's existence is oddly enough called a conspiracy theory by our prestigious social political establishment if one disagrees with it. Despite the World Economic Fo uh, Forum's executive chair, Klaus Schwab, writing a book about it called COVID-19, the Great Reset. <laughs> if one disagrees with Klaus Schwab's latest book called The Great Narrative, I'm sure our prestigious establishment will also label that dissident a conspiracy theorist. How dare they disagree with their globalist superiors? If one were a rational, critical thinker, they would realize that trying to discredit someone by calling them a conspiracy theorist is simply the logical fallacy of ad hominem. 
the attack on the person and not the argument. Calling someone a conspiracy theorist in my book is a badge of honor. If they were truly a rambling nut bar, why not just ignore them? The king of conspiracy theorists, David Icke, the infamous advocate of the reptilian hypothesis. The guy is fun to listen to, and he gives a lot of what ifs that a free society would be, you know, allowed to ask. Yet he's banned from Twitter and probably other social media. The implication is that people are too stupid to decide for themselves what is true or not and is only allowed to hear the uh, approved narratives. That is cult control 101. Like how the political establishment only gives the pros of a thing they want to implement and censor the cons like the COVID shot or digital ID, digital currency, etc. We expect that behavior in partisan politics, but not from our establishment, which is alarming to say the least. On this subject, I suggest you, the listener, to research the Behavioral Insights Team, also known as the Nudge Unit. They apply and generate behavioral insights. What are behavioral insights, you might ask? They are composed of three elements. One, evidence that drives human behavior. Two, practical issues. Practical for who? Applying this evidence to actual problems and issues to achieve change in the real world, as opposed to what world? (laughs) Three, evaluation. Tests to see if what they are doing works and by how much. So the behavioral insights approach, right? Nice euphemism, right? Approach to what you might ask, right? Approach to applying evidence. How do you apply evidence? <laughs> it's it's others speak, you know, for, for techniques. So their approach to applying evidence which change human behavior in the wor- the real world. Not so theoretical, but actual, practical attacks on unsuspecting targets and then measure the effectiveness of their attacks. This would be spooky enough if they were nonpartisan. But of course, in this globalist woke epic of hell, their organization is owned by Nesta, an ideological group that I think reeks of woke bigotry with their main goal being equal outcomes, equity, which suffocates merit. Sounds a lot like the 2030 globalist Marxists. Interestingly enough, these shitbags also have a 2030 deadline. A deadline for what? Woo, don't know. Gonna have to wait and find out if we're still alive. A black swan event is a uh, an unpredictable event that has potentially catastrophic consequences. So a black swan event is based on perspective. From the perspective of the perpetrators between 9-11, it was not a black swan event as they knew about it. But from the perspective of the ignorant masses, it was a black swan event. But even then, there were clues for the observant. So... Uh, Could something be called a black swan event if there were clues and indicators? It's easy to see how elites see the masses as mindless meatbags to be exploited 
or destroyed the useless eaters. They call the people surplus population. It's all perspective, naming and framing. Let's frame the globalist scum who want to exploit and destroy the people and name them. What should we call them? The, the Aragonti Ignoranti? <laughs> Riffing off of Illuminati? You know, just more accurate. Aragonti, arrogant and ignorant. Aragonti Ignoranti. I'm probably not going to remember that. Anyway, Gustav claims there has never been a nation that survived the collapse of one's beliefs. The United States and the change of economic beliefs away from slavery, among other things, did occur, and there was great upheaval around that time with the Civil War. Am I just looking for evidence to confirm Gustav's assertion? A lot of times that happens. You see something and you try to connect the dots and try to, you know, make it make sense, which is not a good thing. It's good to make things make sense, but not force things that don't make sense to make sense. The U.S. survived. So I guess that refutes uh, Gustav's claim. Although, did they survive in the same manner? Is it the same? Maybe it's not. I can't think of a time when a nation lost one of its general beliefs and did not experience massive turmoil, war, or rebellion, or revolution. Perhaps a more subtle inch-by-inch nudging of beliefs is being used today. Perhaps via organizations such as the Behavioral Insights Team and the Nudge Unit. Nudge, nudge. Never mind government-sponsored psyops, but the globalist-scale manipulators are an order of magnitude more dangerous than national ones, the arrogante ignoranti. Though Klaus Schwab tells us that their tentacles of influence are also on the national level, as they control Canada's prime minister and most of his cabinet, we can then assume that they are on the lower levels, low levels, the lower levels of government right down to the crappy little municipalities. I don't recall giving permission to be mine raped. Manipulation against your will is way beyond the woke biggest term microaggressions. Trying to change who you are, your wants, beliefs, and opinions is way worse than any physical aggression. It's an assassination of the core of who you are turning you into an automaton that wants what someone else wants you to want. I'm reading close to the, uh, I'm treading. I'm treading close to the heap fallacy. At what point does a few grains become a heap? At what point does arguing your point become manipulation and mind rape? I'm not sure of the exact line, but there definitely is a, a difference. It's like a fog. At what point do you enter it, right? There are times when it is to our benefit to convince others and that benefit is worth the energy. If logic and reason do not work, should we employ the techniques of manipulation? It's dangerous because we could be wrong, but a lot of shitbag humans don't care if they're wrong or not. And once they're aware of these techniques, they use them for political advantage or some other amoral goal. Does natural selection care about morals? Well, morals exist, so we can assume they probably evolved for some reason. Or perhaps they exist because we have been conditioned by some malevolent assholes to have them in order to be easier to control, or to self-police our actions, or even self-police our wants. For the natural selection argument, it could be that if one does not have morals, others in the group will eventually kill you for pissing them off. Our society has some 
grand virtue signaling feedback system where people pretend to have morals and eventually condition their offspring to have those morals. Those morals may then survive through conditioning of subsequent generations of the conditioned human spawn. Could be a mix of the above and other factors that are unknown. Deception, secrecy, and dishonesty does appear to have a strategic advantage, even in nature. Take camouflage. It is deceptive, secret, and dishonest, and it is trying to trick others. But in our society, when those who use deception, secrecy, and dishonesty are found out, they are scorned. Nature uses camouflage in offense as well as defense. Life pretty much needs to eat life every day in order to exist. So offense is not intrinsically bad, like Nietzsche said about the spider and the fly. But this does not mean that the fly should not be pissed or fight to survive. On the contrary, nature is about the fight for survival. Some survive by having many offspring, knowing most will be uh, eaten like rabbits and mice. Others survive by being predators. Still others survive by being symbiotic with other life. There's mutualism where both life forms benefit, commensalism where one benefits and the other experiences no harm, parasitism uh, where one benefits and the other is harmed, and parasitoidism where one benefits and the other is killed. The globalist arrogante ignoranti are parasitoids. <laughs> they wish to benefit and kill off other life forms. There's no claim that the arrogante ignoranti plans are an evolutionary stable uh, strategy. If they succeed, they may end up wiping themselves off the face of the planet too. <laughs> Unless David Icke is right and they are actually reptilians. The information war we are in now is not new. There have always been malefactors preying on unsuspecting targets in the human race. Today, they are global in scale. There are always petty grifters and manipulators, but today, the other end of the spectrum includes well-resourced organizations whose goal is to prey on the unsuspecting by changing the target's beliefs or nudge the bulk of the crowd to a mass belief or general belief sufficient to enact whatever agenda the manipulator wants. And since they are doing it deceptively, we can only assume that their cause is a malevolent one. Otherwise, they would be open and transparent and expose all the cons and not just the pros to let the people decide on their own. Or never mind, just not the pros. They don't mention anything. They do it in secret. But just listening to the self-proclaimed elites speak, it is evident that they have disdain for the masses and believe that the people are incapable of rational thought. The problem is the conflation of masses with the crowd, the crowd being those who fell victim by dropping their guard, i.e. stop being critical about the information that they take in. The masses would be everyone, the brainwashed and the unbrainwashed alike. As the Titanic demonstrated, even the wealthy are part of the masses. Though the poor were demonstrably treated much worse by serfs to the wealthy by locking them down and the less wealthy in the, uh, the lower decks guaranteeing their deaths, men, women, and children. The selfish and greedy tend to be more wealthy and have no problem murdering tons of innocent people if it increases their chance of survival minimally. 
How does natural selection view this? In the short term, it benefits the wealthy pieces of shit who murdered all those innocents as the rich assholes that survived got to keep their genetic line alive. What cost was there to the wealthy? Nothing. Just a few voices like mine calling them out as murderous pieces of shit. Yes, one could argue it was just the porters who locked the gates to the lower decks. But why would they do that? You know, on whose authority? Whose orders? For what purpose? So that there might be enough lifeboats for the wealthy shitbags who throat chortle at Hoi Polloi. Hoi Polloi, the populace. Hoi Oligoi, the oligarchs. The Romans have similar concepts. Plebeians were the commoners by birth, and patricians were rulers by birth. In the early empire, anyways. Interestingly, even if you were a wealthy farmer in ancient Rome, you were still a plebeian. Gustav clearly has disdain for the crowd. If one defines the crowd as the uncritical thinkers who should know better, but are uncritical, I could see his point. But he conflates the crowd with the general masses, which, as I've said in earlier, uh, is, is an overgeneralization and an expose on his elitist perspective. Even then, there's uh, the issue of manipulation. Does Gustav has, have disdain for those fooled by a trick or manipulated by false evidence? This is the crux. We may know it's a trick, and we may know that we have been fooled, but that doesn't mean we know the mechanism of the trickery, and that leads us to situations where we may not realize that we've been tricked. It's key to try to understand the mechanisms of deception if one has any hope of knowing what is true and what is deception. Humans have been writing and talking about this for centuries, and yet there still is the manipulated masses and the deceptive elites fighting for power and control. If people are not critical thinkers, i.e. they don't question everything, even and especially the things we want to believe, that it's likely we are, as Gustav claims, the crowd. People are not static things. At times, even critical thinkers let their guard down, for some reason have blind spots, and bullshit can be believed. Or there is some kung fu that is just superior to our current level of critical thinking. Clearly, there have and are different degrees of critical thought, and there are different degrees of kung fu. Kung fu being manipulation techniques. So long as the greater percentage of people are Gustav's crowd, manipulators on the macro scale get ahead. The critical mass sufficient to move the needle. Gustav claims the reason why societies are so intolerant to those who question or challenge their beliefs is because at some level, they know that the challenge threatens their society. So Gustav's crowd are part of a society of the manipulated. This might explain the Inquisition or how some modern scientists are so narrow-minded and fight for dogma and against more plausible hypotheses that better explain the evidence. This might also explain uh, resistance to globalism on first blush. If it weren't for human nature, the evils of centralization and certainty of global hegemony, globalism would not be a bad idea. But there is certainty of global hegemony, 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 however you want to pronounce it. <laughs> 
We learned with the Irish potato famine the dangers of monocrop and the value of diversity in crops, as in if one variety catches a blight, the other varietals may not, which will yield potentially a crop instead of you know famine. So the analogy works with nations as well. If one nation loses their shit, makes idiotic decisions, which are certain in an out-of-touch centralized regime, and that nation collapses as in Argentina and other communist regimes, other civilizations that don't make idiotic decisions will still be around and therefore civilization may continue. The natural selection of societies will continue as we make better and better societies, allowing the shit ones to die off. This cannot happen in a global system. It will be a global monocrop. We will have a potato famine. It will be an ideological civilization famine where society will collapse. A centralized globalist system will result in the certain collapse of civilization and perhaps the species. There will be catastrophic death, disease, and ecological disasters on a global scale in a global system. It is idiotic, lazy, and inefficient to not have the contingency of diverse sovereign nations. Globalism is Enrico's great filter. Gustav claimed that civilizations collapse when their general beliefs are challenged and disappear. He then claims that once a general belief is implanted, its power for a long time is invincible. What is stopping people from challenging it right away? He also claims that however false the belief is, it imposes itself upon the most luminous intelligence. Just an assertion. And maybe the most luminous intelligence of his day were really dumb. Or maybe this is his way of sort of, you know, uh, saying the luminous intelligence is the Illuminati. Right? So he's saying no matter, uh, no matter how false the belief, it imposes itself upon the Illuminati as well. I don't know. So it's just, <coughs> it's just an assertion. But he at least doesn't claim it imposes itself on all intelligentsia. He cites the centuries-long belief in the barbarous religious legend of Moloch, the fightful absurdity of the legend of a god who ravages himself for the disobedience of one of his creatures by inflicting horrible torture on his son remained unperceived for centuries. A god who tortured his own son for the sins of his creatures, his followers, this being the god that apparently started about 3,000 years ago with the Phoenicians in Carthage and across the Mediterranean. I've been to Tunisia, Tunisia, I've been to Tunisia, Tunis in Tunisia, and the ruins of Carthage. It was it was an interesting trip. The uh, idiot uh, leader of Tunis, if I recall correctly, converted one of the ruins into a uh, palace. Interesting to uh, side note on Moloch. This is the owl or bull that is still seen today. The Bible warned people not to worship it as it was the god of child sacrifice. In the Bohemian Grove in California, many presidents and elites have danced around the statue of Moloch as they burn a little girl in effigy called Care. So about the Bohemian Grove, the uh, President Nixon 
is recorded saying, it's the most goddamn faggoty thing. <laughs> Richard Nixon. Apparently the Vatican, who apparently owns or has control over the Colosseum in Rome, had allowed a statue of Moloch to be placed at the entrance of the Colosseum for a few months until March 2020, the official start of the pandemic. Why would the Vatican do this? I'm suspicious that like many cults, uh, where the outer layers of, you know, useful idiots are misled and the inner sanctum of the elites follow the opposite of what they preach. The Vatican are actually followers of Moloch and Satan or some other spooky shit. Just like the elite in the U.S. with their Moloch, the Bohemian Grove. And I'm also suspicious of the Masons, who, whose uh, inner core of elites, the 30 degree or higher types, are Satanists who pray to Moloch, apparently. These are my suspicions, and I encourage everyone to research on their own. Gustav wrote that such potent geniuses as A. Galileo, A. Newton, and A. Leibniz never supposed for an instant that the truth of such dogmas of Moloch could be called in question. Nothing can be more tyrannical than this fact of the hypnotizing effect of general beliefs, but at the same time, nothing can mark more decisively the humiliating limitations of our intelligence. How does Gustav know what Newton, Leibniz, or Galileo thought based on what they did not say? Gustav made an affirmation about hypnotizing effects of general beliefs and finishes with the same, uh, with something every critical thinker would agree with, we have limited intelligence. This is the same technique of manipulation used by Mao. Assertion of bullshit finished off with irrefutable general logic or a mantra of the critical thinker. It's like the Pope making some bullshit assertion and then finishing off with a religious mantra, such as the will of God. It appears Gustav is not joking. <laughs> but is trying to manipulate critical thinkers with the drug of the words they want to hear. One of their self-evident mantras used as dogma against them. I'm leaning to this not being a meta joke by Gustav, though it's odd to use the mantras of a critical thinker against people who think themselves critical thinkers. It's like a perception management campaign appealing to one's intellect. It's ironic that the idiots who think themselves smart are the most vulnerable to it. I'm beginning to think that it's just a manifestation of Gustav's fractured thinking. It's simpler, simpler. It's, it's similar how uh, scientists today are supposed to abhor dogma. Abhor? Abhor? How do you pronounce abhor? Abhor. 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 What the fuck? Abhor. Abhor. British idiots. So I'm beginning to think that, uh, what was I saying? Uh, yeah, how scientists today are supposed to uh, abhor dogma and are supposed to have open minds, yet so many push current theories as dogmatic truths and are close-minded to new evidence, probably based on the funding, right? Their, their funders are telling them to shut up and just print this as your result, right? Or perhaps Gustav is having a laugh at the expense of those who have a shallow grasp of critical thinking. It's sometimes hard to tell when someone's being sarcastic, making a joke, or just being an idiot. Regardless, this Moloch creep has been appearing in a bunch of crap I've read. The stories are deeply twisted. But humans can be effed up garbage, so it's plausible that some savages did 
burn their babies. There's archaeological evidence of thousands of charred babies' bones, uh, as many disturbing accounts by both the uh, the ancient Greeks and Romans who themselves were not strangers to being twisted in human garbage. So Gustav claims once dogmas are implanted in the minds of crowds, it becomes the source of inspiration for institutions, arts, and modes of existence. Men of action have no thought beyond realizing the accepted belief, legislators beyond applying it, while philosophers, artists, and men of letters are solely preoccupied preoccupied with its expression under various shapes. So he says, Gustav claims transient ideas may arise, but always bear the mark of the belief from whence they sprung. And therefore, men of every age are enveloped in a network of traditions, opinions, and customs which render them all alike and from whose yoke they cannot extricate themselves. Again, more overgeneralization bullshit from Gustav. Assertions sans proof. There may be things which we believe today or know today that wasn't known a generation ago, but traditions, opinions, and customs are fragmented. And I would go as far as say that there is now one tradition, opinion, or custom which everyone today shares. This could be a result of cultural Marxism trying to destroy Western society. But regardless, this is the state of our contemporary day. His thinking in stereotype is common in small-minded academics and storytellers who make claims like, everyone of this area believe this religion or everyone in that demographic are illiterate, or everyone from that nation believe X. The same logic would claim everyone who goes to Bohemian Grove believes in Moloch and participates in homosexual events. We have direct evidence that at least Nixon was not impressed with the event. The fact Biden has been around so long would also imply that it's plausible he partook and is keeping his knob-gobbling secrets. <laughs> Gustav claims religions have a more profound despotism that conquerors like Tiberius, Khan, and Napoleon, and the most independent spirit cannot escape them. I agree that mind-fucking is worse than physically conquering, but again, I have to call bullshit about no one being able to escape the influence. I escaped the influence of Christianity. In fact, the more I researched it, the more I realized it was bullshit. But I don't know precisely where morals and values come from, so it's possible that I'm still under the influence of Christian values, assuming they are the same as I have, which they may not be. <laughs> Why do I find it repulsive that the Phoenicians, Jews, and other early peoples of the Mediterranean burn their young alive, and followers of Moloch do not find it repulsive? Why are there similarities with Moloch wanting children sacrificed, possibly the firstborn son, and the Old Testament Passover, or Moloch torturing, torturing his son for the sins of his creations, and the New Testament with the whole Jesus on the cross shtick? Why are there elites today still associating with Moloch, the Vatican, the American elite at Bohemian Grove, the Masons, who knows who else? 
JFK warned us about secret societies and he was murdered with many loose threads and suspicious evidence. Skull and bones are associated with both the CIA and Bohemian Grove. It's a rabbit hole. What we can say is that there are many well-funded organizations whose goal it is to manipulate our beliefs, opinions, and desires. The defense against it, of course, is to learn as much about their techniques as possible and implant the countermeasures. The most powerful being question everything and trust no one. Gustav wrote, a conspiracy may overthrow a tyrant, but what can it avail, help or benefit, against a firmly established belief? Hearts and minds. If Gustav only knew about modern psyops, the American military has well-funded psyops teams and they try to win over the hearts and minds of their targets. But if you look at the U.S. foreign affairs track record, their foreign psyops programs have been ineffectual dog shit. Look at Iraq or Afghanistan or 99% of the countries outside of the USA. If their PSYOPs were effectual, the USA would not be one of the most hated nations, assuming their goal was to ingratiate themselves with the targets. Perhaps their goal was to terrorize the world and make them fear or hate the USA. Or perhaps the goals were to destabilize, gain resources, etc. And what the world thinks of them is irrelevant. So perhaps Gustav has a point. But we do see highly effective perception management campaigns today, especially since the outbreak of COVID-19. It clearly does not work on everyone, but it is scary how many people do fall for it and how do deeply they do believe it. Gustav wrote, the absurdity that often marks general beliefs has never been an obstacle to the triumph. Indeed, the triumph of such beliefs would seem impossible unless on the condition that they offer some mysterious absurdity. So he's saying they have to be absurd. The weakness of beliefs don't stop them from being accepted by the masses. He didn't write the crowd. He wrote the masses. If the beliefs suck, they have to offer future rewards for present hardship. So long as that time of reward never comes, the targets will keep believing the bullshit. If that time comes and there's no reward, the belief, of course, will collapse. That was Gustav's hypothesis of fixed opinions on the crowd. What does he have to say about the changeable opinions on the crowd? Here, Gustav rambles on about the genius of a race. Genius, I'm interpreting to mean zeitgeist, and race meaning nationality, specifically the French in his case. You could interpret race to mean genetic dispos uh, disposition. He may say, uh, makes a bunch of affirmations and conjectures, and I'm not going to bother repeating them. His claims are just not cogent. Perhaps I didn't read it close enough, but it did not resonate with me. His main point is that changeable opinions change. Well, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> he claims all those who are in opposition with the general beliefs and sentiments are of a transient nature, and the diverted stream soon resumes its course. It's an, uh, uh, an assertion with an analogy as evidence. It's not cogent. He uses this mode again and again. Assertion with analogy as proof. It sounds pretty, but it's not logical. I could write the same, you know, type of bullshit. Uh, for example, intelligence grows in the presence of a marble. 
as the sun warms a rock. It's, it's, it's literally that stupid. It's nonsense. Gustav refers to haphazard opinions, opinions, opinions without a past or future. It would seem to me that the natural selection of ideas, opinions, or concepts require the haphazard nature. At times, nature likes to spray and pray with hopes that something will stick. The onus is on the individual to pluck the fruit and leave the weeds. The best method I currently know in using is using critical thought. Question it. What is the evidence? Are there alternatives? Does it really make sense? Are there fallacious appeals? Am I supposed to believe something because of who is saying it instead of verifiable, convincing evidence? Is there a phantom connection? Don't stop questioning it. Always look for evidence that indicate we might be wrong. I've read crap that I thought was batshit crazy until I checked the sources and was surprised that the claim was true. An example was a claim that in 2017, the FDA warned about mRNA vaccines and how vaccine shedding needs to be examined before animal trials. It turns out that this was true according to the FDA. The animal trials were, of course, never done before they started sticking it into humans. No regard for girl issues, birth rejects, etc. from vaccine shedding. Gustav claims old beliefs lose their influence based on what evidence? Does he mean old false beliefs with no evidence to back them? Even then, religions and gods are still believed today. Look at Gustav's own example of Moloch. That story is over 3,000 years old. Just being old is not sufficient for a belief to go away or to believe it. Perhaps not being repeated or reinforced is. Though given the mysteries of the ancient world, there clearly have been some truths that have been lost. Information can be lost. Does that information being true or false have anything to do with that? No. Look at the math they used to uh, create the, the pyramids or all these other ancient structures, the techniques for carving the uh, those rocks in South America that fit perfectly. I would argue that uh, it's change in technology or priorities or loss of civilization due to limited resources that... Uh, facilitate the loss of information on a society level. And, of course, there's genocide. Look at the end of the uh, Bronze Age, all those civilizations destroyed by a roving band of water people. I imagine a lot of information was lost then. Gustav claims the newspapers are a force that causes contrary opinions in the crowd, with uh, new opinions constantly destroying old ones at the whim of the news media. I could see this being true in a certain scope. There is definitely an effect where the crowd drink the Kool-Aid and do not question the worm-tongue opinions of the lying reporters hiding behind their false prestige. Perhaps the uh, the crowd are too lazy and are just you know looking for what to think on current issues instead of having to think for themselves. I think Gustav would agree with me on that one. He claims the rapid change of opinion results in no opinion becoming widespread. They stay ephemeral. If that's true, what if the news media were to keep propagating the same opinion over and over? According to Gustav's logic, it would become a widespread opinion. Gustav claims that due to this ephemerality of opinion by the press, that the government has lost the ability to direct opinion. This assumes there is an independent press. 
What if the government were to dictate who was recognized news? Hmm. What if the government were to become ideologically aligned with the press? Mao said this was critical. The press is the government. Today, the press is not important news. It is blatant attacks on those who disagree with their ideology and roses, roses, and roses, blind spots, and promotion for the villains who support their ideology. He claims the politics of his day are swayed by the impulse of the crowds. Today, the crowds are beaten back by the agenda of the state and their masters in the 1%. Gustav wrote the press of his day renounced all endeavor to enforce an idea or doctrine. The opposite is the case today. The papers do not answer to the readers. They dictate to them. The media is a, as a consequence is becoming a legacy industry which indicates people are not as stupid as they hoped. In Canada, the general population is way less critical than the U.S. counterparts, as the Canadian crowd is still suckling at the tit of a press that is subservient to the government. The union of state and press is called the political establishment. Gustav wrote that people of his day suspect every affirmation of being prompted by motives of speculation regarding the cynical view they have of the paper. So the opposite of the sheep crowd that he defined the masses of being earlier. The contemporary crowd today in Canada is too idiotic to be cynical of the garbage from media sources such as the Toronto Star also known as the Red Star, the CBC or, or CTV, all horrible propagandistic garbage that only an absolute idiot would take as a valid source of information. The fact that Gustav wrote the people of his day suspected every affirmation from the papers as being prompted by motives of speculation leads me to believe he was writing to a more critical audience who might get that he's joking because he's using a lot of affirmations based on speculation. So he must be aware he's doing it unless he has zero self-awareness. Think, it was over 130 years ago that Gustav wrote, the close watching of the course of opinion has become today the principal preoccupation of the press and of governments. Today we call the political establishment. Gustav implies the political establishment were changing their stances and public opinions to match the tyranny of the crowd. But over the last century, the political establishment have learned and they're still watching the opinions, but with an eye to control the people, not be controlled by them. The political establishment dictates that the crowd execrates today what it applauded yesterday. Execrate meaning uh, to declare... Uh, to be hateful, to denounce, to invoke a curse on. So look at Canada and how the former champions of rights and freedoms call those who still advocate for rights and freedoms racists, Nazis, and extreme misogynists solely because they are defending rights and freedoms. Perhaps the crowd has a tendency to natural uh, predisposition to flip, as Gustav notes, or our political establishment have indeed learned over the last century to control, steer, or nudge the crowd with their steering committees and nudge units. 
Gustav claims the ephemeral nature of opinions results in extreme divergency of convictions and growing indifference. Extrapolating, then, the opposite of a sustained and repeated program of opinion management by the political establishment would or may result in extreme convergence of convictions and people who only care about some dictated narrative. Hmm, George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, whatever Antifa puppets are rioting over. It would appear these opinions also have a shelf life to the crowd, though felt more intense for you know, a longer period, or perhaps as the propaganda tap is turned off, there's a hysteresis or, or latent uh, ringing on the narrative of the narrative before the crowd drift back to their normal automatic behavior. Add fear to the program or pogrom, and we have the C-19 narrative of don't question the efficacy or safety of the shot. Actually wire the crowd to hate those who question government overreach or hiding of adverse effects or dare to look into prophylactic treatments like ivermectin literally called uh, or literally a uh, a uh, it's literally a nobel prize winning essential medicine and, and they call it a horse paste the the idiot crowd actually bought it unbelievable and they fear not just what those people say they fear those people People will be studying the effectiveness of the COVID-19 pogrom for decades to come. They might, you know, be evil, uh, uh, people thrilled over the effectiveness of the pogrom against critical thought, or they might be survivors trying to grasp the effectiveness of the evil cast against the free-thinking humans who support, you know, the the true nature of science and, and critical thought. Gustav wrote... Questions of doctrine such as socialism only recruit champions boasting genuine convictions among the quite illiterate classes. <laughs> Clearly, they need to be literate to read the propaganda goose. So what, he's actually, what he actually means is the uncritical morons who read and believe garbage like Marxist propaganda and are the only ones stupid enough to boast genuine convictions of such an idiotic ideology. If they were actually critical thinkers reading Marxist garbage, they would be, you know, the most effective thing to break their delusion. He's also implying there are advocates of the ideology who know it's bullshit, but are using it as a tool of manipulation against their useful idiot followers. It's therefore self-evident that anyone who reads Marxist garbage who genuinely support the idiotic ideology is, is, uh, demonstrably an uncritical moron demonstrably the question for thinking humans is then who are the genuine idiots and who are the puppet masters publicly supporting it but know better in private it's the same with cults religions secret organizations partisan political parties probably some charities organized crime large corporations biker gangs the creepy inner circle who know better and the useful idiots who are their devout followers who actually believe the propaganda and hype. Gustav claims that due to discussion and analysis, opinions are rapidly losing their prestige. Gustav must define uh, 
opinion as false belief. Clearly, some people are becoming more critical of false opinions, and those false opinions are rightfully losing their prestige. I have to call Gustav an idiot for implying that all opinions are false. If he believed that, he has to think that all his opinions are false. There's a difference between being open-minded, critical thinker who knows they might be wrong and a narrow-minded idiot who believes all opinions are false. An opinion is defined as a view, judgment, or appraisal formed in the mind about a particular matter. There's no mention of it having to be false. An opinion is not defined as the antithesis or antonym of fact. An opinion is not the opposite of fact. Gustav has a pretty shaky logic here and there. He demonstrates his monolithic logic based on stereotype yet again when he claimed all monarchists believe the same thing about religion and evolution and Republicans believe the opposite, that we evolved from primates. Is it not plausible that there were religious Republicans and monarchists who followed the scientific theories of the day? The following were deemed monarchists and killed by the Republican revolutionaries. Jean Sylvain Bailey was an astronomer. Philippe Frederick was a mineralogist. Jean Baptiste Gaspard Bouchard was an astronomer. Chrétien Guillaume was a botanist. And Antoine Lavoisier was a famed chemist who named oxygen, hydrogen, and helped construct the metric system. Some say the father of modern chemistry. Gustav would have known this, yet he still claims all monarchists are religious and all Republicans are followers of Darwin. It's dangerous to speak so often in generalizations, especially based on assumptions and speculation, as one mind begins to mimic one's speech and therefore may think in generalizations. Gustav mentions how weak opinions fail to stir our enthusiasm. Do beliefs or opinions have to be exciting and stir our enthusiasm? Enthusiasm? I would argue the vast majority of all opinions are very boring and dry. In fact, what is an exciting opinion that does spark enthusiasm? It would probably be something new. Is there an old opinion that sparks enthusiasm? I'm stumped over any opinion that stirs enthusiasm. Is this the basis of manipulation in cults? some crazy opinion that stirs enthusiasm. I suppose if it were a fantastic perspective that went right up to but not past one's belief limiter, it would probably stir enthusiasm. But once it crosses that limit of belief, it would lose all prestige and just be called hokum. I guess that's why the very narrow-minded people with tight, small belief limits are boring. Whereas uh, Overly open-minded people with vast, relaxed belief limits are more enthusiastic about life and the possibilities. I'm sure it's more dynamic and complex about that, but it appears to be. So Gustav explains, it is certain that men of immense, of almost supernatural insight, that apostles, leaders of crowds, men in a word of genuine and strong convictions, exert a far greater force than men who deny, who criticize, or who are indifferent. Ignoring the apostles are by definition followers. It appears Gustav is claiming it is the speaker's enthusiasm 
that is more important than the opinion itself. I'm assuming he's talking about the effects on a non-critical crowd because if he's not, he's barking bullshit again. Again, critical thinking does not mean cynical. A lot of people seem to conflate those two. Gustav's classifications of crowds. Now, I probably should have talked about this at the very beginning since this will help you (laughs) classify what he means by the crowds. So he has two main categories of his crowd. Mixed crowds, also called heterogeneous crowds, and the other is homogeneous crowds. Mixed crowds or heterogeneous crowds are broken into two subcategories. Anonymous, like street crowds, and not anonymous, like juries and parliamentary assemblies, stuff like that. So his homogeneous crowds or homogeneous crowd is broken up into three categories. Sex, S-E-C-T-S, sects, not S-E-X, S-E-C-T-S, sects. So sects, sects, uh, which are political and uh, religions, etc. And then his second homogeneous crowd is castes, which are, he defines it jobs, essentially, like military priests or laborers. And three is classes, which is, he defines as level of wealth and influence, like the peasant class, the middle class, and the one percenters. So his class categories are also based on education. Today, we define sex as a faction united by common beliefs. Castes as hereditary rank. How racist is that? Uh, Profession or wealth. We define a class as anything with a common characteristic or property. However, one defines that. So a sect is a class of people united by common beliefs. Castes are a class of people of similar hereditary rank, though Gustav defines them more based on their career. And social classes are a class of people who share common characteristics, which is implied to be wealth and influence. For those of you who heard my podcast on Marx, you'll recall that Marxists define social classes based on the relationship to means of production, which was never valid and is totally anachronistic today. You might notice uh, that Gustav's classifications of crowds, anonymous, not anonymous, sex, caste, and classes, classes include everyone, which is uh, he was either lazy or overgeneralized, or he intentionally did that to make the reader realize that they too are susceptible to being part of the crowd. I would like to think that that is what he meant. So Gustav mentioned how sects or shared beliefs include a cross-section of individuals differing greatly as to their education, profession, or class. So no one is safe from the potential enchantment of the crowd. This point by Gustav is critical to grasp that a belief can be shared across classes regardless of education, profession, or class, since false beliefs are more in the domain of the uncritical mind and false beliefs can be shared by a group regardless of education, profession, or class, then it is evident that education, profession, and class are not correlated to critical thinking. You might then ask, how does an idiot become wealthy, get a PhD, or run a government or corporation? And yet, we see evidence of this every day, especially every time an idiot like Justin Trudeau speaks. 
He became wealthy from inheritance. He was elected based on his father's name. Perfect example of someone wealthy, influential, and stupid. He clearly has an idiotic belief shared with morons regardless of education, class, or profession. There is evidence which supports Gustav's claim. We also hear from PhDs who are clearly clueless beyond their area of expertise and sometimes even clueless in their field, like most PhDs in the soft sciences. Getting back to the the idiot Justin Trudeau, who would vote for such a blatantly unethical moron? I mean, who would? Gustav defines electoral crowds or voters as collectivities invested with the power of electing the holders of certain functions. They are the mixed crowd or heterogeneous. Their action is confined to a single, clearly defined matter, choosing a candidate. So they only present a few of the characteristics previously described, according to Gustav. But in the book, Gustav also defined the crowd as a group that is confined to a single, clearly defined matter. It's like the crowd is under control of a specific idea, like meme theory. In his 1976 book, uh, The Selfish Gene, Richard Dawkins defined the meme or memetic theory as a consciousness that was that uses people and natural selection to facilitate its existence or something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing. In the case of Gustav's crowd, the meme is using the crowd to keep it alive, like an ideological parasite appears over here in this group, then disappears, could reappear generations later, do some damage, then disappear again. Dawkins' uh, mimetic theory is not to be confused with French anthropologist René Girard. Girard? Girard's mimetic theory. One is M-E-M-E-T-I-C, the other one is M-I-M-E-T-C. So, uh, Rene's mimetic theory is that human desire is not individual, but collective or social. His mimetic theory moves through a four-stage process. One, desire. Two, conflict. Three, scapegoating. And four, the cover-up. <laughs> Essentially, Rene's mimetic theory is that people want what other people want. We mimic them, uh, which is the logical fa- fallacy of appeal to the mob. Everyone else wants to drink the Kool-Aid, so should you, Brainwashing 101. Rene's theory is not based on what everyone else does. It's based on what non-critical thinkers do. But we are all susceptible to the powers and modes of influence, so we have to keep our guard up. So getting back to Trudeau and the idiots who voted for him, Gustav claims the characteristic voters do have is slight aptitude for reasoning, the absence of critical spirit, irritability, credulity, and simplicity. (laughs) So credulity, recall, is the tendency to be too ready to believe that something is true or real. And critical spirit, of course, is someone, I assume, using critical thought. Voters have a slight aptitude for reasoning. So they don't have an aptitude. They just have a slight aptitude. Absence of a critical spirit, irritability, and credulity. So I don't see the correlation with irritability, but whatever. The key ingredient to a stupid voter is credulity. The fact that they are too ready to believe bullshit. That goes hand in hand with lacking critical spirit and slight aptitude for reasoning. This does indeed make them simple.
Gustav claims voters are programmed by affirmation, repetition, prestige, and contagion, not reason and evidence. A reasonable person looks at all evidence, not just the evidence that supports their argument. If one ignores evidence that counters their argument, they are by definition delusional, if they're aware of that, imp- that uh, evidence. Gustav claims the most successful methods of persuasion by political, uh, by politicos, well, politicians, start with prestige. The candidate must have prestige, that is, widely accepted respect and admiration for their public image or persona. If they lack personal prestige, that is not prestige, or that is prestige of character, they must at least have wealth. Talent and even genius are not elements of success of serious importance, he claims. It's the key that the, uh, it is key that the candidate's prestige is sufficient to force itself upon the electorate without discussion. Discussion and inquiry will destroy the illusion of integrity based on prestige, according to Gustav. If you ask yourself why you like a candidate and cannot answer specifics, you're probably a Gustavian idiot and are basing your decision on prestige. Gustav claims workers and peasants don't choose candidates from their own class because they don't have prestige. The claim is plausible but arguable. Gustav writes that prestige alone does not suffice to assure the success of the candidate. The candidate needs to blow smoke up the voter's ass. Flattery of their greed and vanity and be overwhelmed by the most extravagant blandishments. A blandishment is a uh, flattering or pleasing statement or action that that is used to gently persuade someone to do something. Extravagant, of course, means unrestrained. So by extravagant blandishments, Gustav means unrestrained flattery to gently persuade the nauseating cotton candy false flattery we've come to expect from scumbag politicians who kiss babies during elections. Gustav claims that candidates must give the most fantastic promises, perhaps insult and stigmatize employers and an effort must be made to destroy the rival candidate by the power of affirmation, repetition and contagion. The candidate must claim it is common knowledge that the rival is a scoundrel and guilty of several crimes. It is, of course, useless to trouble with any semblance of proof, according to Gustav. If the rival tries to counter the attack with justifications, he is lost. His only recourse is to also throw mud and affirmations while ignoring the opponent's attacks. Sounds like politics still today. Whether it's true or not, this is what we see on campaign trails, or they stick to a script of vacant messaging while claiming to rise above the mudslinging. Gustav mentions how the written campaign material needs to be vague since adversaries, adversaries, ad- adversaries might use it against him in the future. The verbal program can be crazy, but those days have long since passed as we now have recordings of speeches that can come back and haunt someone. Though if the news media is captured by the party, they can bury it. Though the internet is still a porous medium in which the truth can still get out. Gustav claims the most important reforms may be fearlessly promised. 
At the moment they are made, these exaggerations produce a great effect, and they are not binding, as the elector never bothers to follow up on campaign promises. So there are clearly people who play politics like it's a game and are using a paradigm where logic and reason are forbidden. Gustav claims formulas of words such as vile exploiter, infamous capital, and admirable working man have great effect, but wear out and new expressions or formula are required to be meaningless and vague devoid as possible of precise meaning and flatter the most varied aspirations is what he said specifically the purpose of vagueness is so the targets can import their own meaning to it their own interpretation makes it more personal to them words that are their own antonym are great for this or expressions that can be interpreted in diametrically opposed ways it's like a uh, Rorschach test with words. Gustav claims affirmations and invectives can be used in politics to keep the crowd outside, but never arguments as in a logical argument, point counterpoint. Logic and reason must be avoided at all times or else the voter might start thinking critically and have questions. Heckling and insults are the play of the day. The morons in the house are intentionally acting like idiots. The fact that the House of Commons act like this today indicates they believe or at least subscribe to Gustav's theory of the crowd. <laughs> and they think we are it. So Gustav essentially claims that, the, that since populism is the crowd and crowds are idiots, we should not allow populist movements. He is ignoring the fact that the elites are also crowds and equally idiotic according to his own theory. He has a blind spot or is a lazy thinker. He sounds like a typical elitist. Gustav claiming populism is the crowd is the fallacy of definition or whatever it's called, the fallacy of equivocation, where you use a word or phrase which means two things. Yes, populism is a movement of the people and a group of people are a crowd, but a Gustavian crowd is definitely different than a group of people. The fallacy of equivocation. Is it a coincidence that Gustav is using the fallacy of equivocation while mentioning the idea of a concept having two meanings? <laughs> or it's being its own antonym as a powerful tool for a political candidate. You know, it's spookily similar. Is he making a joke? You know, right? Gustav argues that dogmas of the day are believed by every last soul, which is absolute bullshit and an overgeneralization. Gustav at least recognizes that truth and numerical superiority, superiority should not go hand in hand. The fallacy of the majority or appeal to the mob, argumentum ad populum, whatever it's called. Gustav writes, it will always be uh, easy to make a crowd accept general assertions presented in striking terms, although they have never been verified and perhaps not susceptible to verification. Gustav mentioned how the crowd can control politics and the news and how the crowd can be controlled. So clearly, whoever controls the crowd controls politics. Today, it's the news media and their masters in politics who are trying to control the masses. 
Gustav on Parliament mentions the dangers include the inevitable restrictions on liberty consummated by parliamentary assemblies are the result of innumerable laws always having restrictive action which parliaments consider themselves obliged to vote and whose consequences owing to their short-sightedness they are in a great measure blind so they're blind to what they're voting for or the, the consequences gustav then quotes herbert spencer who wrote the increase in apparent liberty is followed by the decrease of real liberty regarding the individual versus the state what's worse is that according to gustav amid the incessant transfer of authority the administrative caste is alone in being untouched by their changes is alone in possessing irresponsibility impersonality and perpetuity there is no more oppressive despotism gustav is only referring to a natural tendency what we have today in that is that uh, compounded with an ideological idiot in office especially in canada where prime minister pierre or justin trudeau is an egocentric vacant moron gustav nails 2022 in 1980 or 1895 with the following victims of the delusion that equality and liberty are the better assured by the multiplication of laws consent to put up with trammels increasing increasingly burdensome trammels are a restriction or impediment to freedom he continues accustomed to put up with every yoke they soon end by desiring servitude they are then no more than vain shadows passive unresisting and powerless automata he describes those who believe uh, politicians and reporters to a t in canada in 2022 so that is justin trudeau's supporters gustav writes that once a uh, an individual has given up like that they are bound to seek outside himself the forces he no longer finds within him which further allows the state to make more power a horrendous feedback loop of lost liberty he refers to this as the decadent phase from which no civilization has escaped and it signifies the old age of civilization and calls this the common phase of civilizations from the barbarous to civilized state based on an ideal when the ideal loses its virtue the state declines and dies yet this is again based on affirmation uh, and supposition you know one last joke by gustav affirmations based on supposition a word that oddly has disappeared from our lexicon is venal venal means showing susceptibility to being motivated by bribery why would that word disappear in a society where bribery has not i'd like to finish this episode with a quote from alexander scholzenitsyn we know they are lying they know they are lying they know that we know they are lying we know that they know that we know they are lying and still they continue to lie see you next episode
Thank you.